This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 74. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. My name is Eric Kimberling, and I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We've got a, a great episode for you today. Uh, happy summer, first of all, to those of you in yeah. the uh, Northern Hemisphere. It's uh, officially summer now for, for much of the world, so I hope you're enjoying your, your summer if you are, in fact, in that part of the world. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, I hope it's not too cold and that uh, you're enjoying your your uh, winter as well. Um, got a great show for you today. We've got a, a few different things we want to cover, three major segments. The first thing we'll get into are our hot topics. Uh, we're going to talk about KPI management software, uh, which would be interesting. interesting. Uh, we'll also talk about AI in autism diagnosis, so sort of the artificial intelligence use case within the, the healthcare industry. We'll talk about uh, AI in, in healthcare in particular as it relates to autism. And we'll get into uh, IT talent in the 2020s and some of the skills that are needed for modern IT organizations as they charter their paths through the 2020s and beyond. And then finally, our last hot topic that we'll cover in the opening segment is related to how to leverage employee resource groups in digital transformation. And Kyler, from what I understand, you're going to introduce us to yet another industry acronym because there are not enough acronyms in our mm -hmm. industry. Is that correct? Never enough. Never. Never enough. All right, so you're gonna you're gonna teach us what ERGs are, employee resource groups. So we'll talk about that, and that's uh, the opening segment with hot topics. We'll cover those those uh, areas, unpack those a bit more, and then uh, later in the show we are going to have uh, somewhat of a global consulting think tank to talk about multinational digital transformations and some of the nuances to be aware of, pitfalls, lessons learned, best practices, things to consider as you embark on any sort of multinational digital transformation. We have uh, team members from the third stage team that are going to represent each of their respective local areas that they're from to talk about um, some of the nuances to be aware of. So stay tuned for that. That'll be a good conversation. We'll get into a lot of good stuff there. And then last but not least, we'll have a digital transformation case study in manufacturing. So we're actually going to have one of our clients on the show uh, later in that third segment uh, from Dexter Russell, who's a, a client of third stages. And Kyler, you had a chance to interview one of our key stakeholders there. So we're going to talk through that case study a bit more with them later in the show. But before we get to our guests, uh, our other guests, I should say, what's uh, what do you have in mind with these hot topics here today, Kyla? Yeah. So I want to start with KPI management software. And I think this is uh, a really interesting software system that basically takes all of the data from machines, from sensors, and from workers and puts them into a real-time dashboard uh, that can measure productivity levels. So this is uh, a well-known software solution, especially 
within the manufacturing space to be able to your KPIs in real time, adjust in real time, optimize in real time. The thing I wanted to talk to you about specifically within this topic is I came across some research that talked about how KPI software off the shelf is not a good option for businesses and they should be customizing their own KPI software in order for it to be most relevant to their business. And we know there's a fine line right between customization and off the shelf solutions. So I wondered if you could give us kind of your reaction to what does it look like to customize something that's so specific software, or is there, you know, a, a templated platform that businesses, especially maybe small to mid-tier businesses can use today? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it brings up the age old debate over whether or not you should, you should customize. And I think we've all, we've all heard the case studies and the horror stories of organizations that over customized and they failed in their transformation as a result. In fact, many of you listening or many organizations listening here today, may have had a project like that in their past lives or earlier, you know, in their, in their careers where um, that's why a lot of clients we work with, for example, want to replace their old systems is because they over customized and now the software no longer is supported or supports what they need. Um, so on one hand, you know, I think there's a, a pretty good awareness that customization can be bad if left unchecked, but um, that's oftentimes more of a risk for a core operational system. So when you start to get into your, mm -hmm your financials, inventory management, and sort of the core enterprise-wide technologies, the risks there are that you change one part of the system and it has some sort of upstream and downstream impact on the overall functionality of the software. So not to say that it it isn't a relevant concern in other situations, but in the case of KPI uh, management software, um, given that that is such a unique type of technology, a specific type of technology, it's not as, to me, it's not as much of a risk in terms of the customization. Now, having said that, when you get some software that's that specialized, you would hope and think that you're going to have enough uh, templates and enough variety in terms of options, in terms of how you could configure the software without customizing it. But it sounds like what you're saying is there's still a potential need to customize depending on what your your KPIs are and what, what it is you're trying to get visibility into. So I think just like anything in moderation, it's okay, especially if it meets your your business objectives. What I would not do is say, we are just not going to customize under any circumstances because that's typically not realistic and you don't want the technology limitations to hold back your business. You want it to support the business as best as you can. And what about a phased approach, Eric? What would it look like for a business that says, I want to take advantage of this software today, learn about it, and then customize it for future use so that I do have some baseline of knowledge or experience with this system. Is that typical or is that a, a right recommend or would you recommend really defining your needs today and then customizing the software before you might use it within any sort of operational sphere? That's a great question. That gets into a discussion we had, I think two episodes ago where we talked about agile versus waterfall. Mm -hmm. And what you're suggesting there is there's sort of an agile-ish sort of option where you could train your team, get to know the software, mess around with it, use that as a way to sort of envision how you might use that technology in your business and then start to figure out how you're going to deploy it rather than let's deploy it and we'll figure it out later. Um, so I think there is a uh, there is a strong case to be made for that sort of approach that you're suggesting especially in cases where it's a newer type of technology to your organization. So if it's, a, if it's a type of technology that you just aren't 
familiar with or you don't have the competencies with you're not using now then that makes a lot of sense what you're saying to, to kind of maybe buy a license or, or to get some limited usage of the software get to know it get familiar get trained and then start to work through how that might look and how that might get deployed in your organization um so i think that's a, that could be a, a good example um of how you might do that i think where there's risk and where there's a challenge is when you've got enterprise-wide technology again when you're talking about integrated mm-hmm. processes and then workflows things like that you need to have a more oftentimes you need a clearer vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish before you start buying and deploying technology so i, I hate to use the the old adage it depends but it, it does depend on, on the type of technology and what it is you're trying to accomplish yeah, fair enough. And a lot of that comes into the organizational DNA, right? Are, are you an organization that's really standardized and built along a lot of, of processes? Or are you more of an entrepreneur that has the, the opportunity or the skill set to go into a system and really get to know it and pull out those um, granular details or those functionalities that are going to benefit your business? So, you know, as always, it's a balance, right? Um uh, to customize or not to customize, I guess, in, in Shakespeare's words, but right. um, just knowing your business and creating that awareness is so important, um, which brings me to another piece that we've been researching a little bit on on our side for a lot of our, our content management or production assets is just the, the new face of IT. And we've done a lot of different um, interviews around this. You uh, recently had one with Ridwan from our, our uh, Third Stage Africa and Middle East team that talked about the role of the CIO evolving role. So I wanted to get your feedback on uh, a new IT talent sector that to me doesn't seem like from a business technologist point of view, doesn't seem like it needs to be a huge priority in the business, but I'm kind of hoping you can prove me wrong in this type of thing. So one of, yeah, one of the <laughs> research pieces had really recommended highly a misinformation team. So basically a team, you know, that goes in, garners and audits any misinformation about your business, both internally or externally um, on the organizational change side to kind of flip any perceptions around, say, a new technology, new process, new policy, all those types of things, but both externally for your customers too, if there's any misinformation in the marketplace about um, your product or service. So for me, that seems like a pretty um, standard role within any sort of digital team, but pulling it out and really identifying it as a new trend. Wanted to get your feedback on what you've seen you know, within your roles of talking like that in, um, in this misinformation tier that seems to be emerging. That's interesting. I actually have not heard of that before, um, other than in the U S you know, in governmental political situations where there's talk of, of disinformation management. Um, I know that's become a political, um, mm-hmm. buzzword. Um, but is this similar to like audit, like, um, you know, auditing your internal financial results? Is it is it that sort of thing? Like auditing and correcting financial results? Or is this more perception based? Or, or what is it really honing in on here? Do you know? Yeah, so it, it really circles around the data, right? So you have data that can tell a certain story. However, if you manipulate that data to tell a different story, and use it without integrity, that this log for that in making sure that you're not using any of those IT resources or data-driven um, 
softwares to create any misinformation around the business. So that's what it comes down from an IT side. Of course, my marketing hat is always, you know, like going out and, and auditing the conversation within your community, uh, both internally right. and externally. So I think it could kind of wear a, a lot of hats, but I'm talking more about from like a hard IT uh, focus. Is this something that you really feel like you must have as a main skill set on your IT team? It sounds like it may be. Um, it's not, again, I think yeah, the topic and your knowledge of it is ahead of where I'm at on it. So uh, it sounds like it could be something that that is emerging as a, as a hotter skill set. I haven't seen it, you know, in real time as of right now, mm-hmm. being super high demand or had uh, client conversations about that sort of thing. But I guess I'd be curious to hear from the audience if anyone's familiar with that or if they have that sort of role on a transformation or within their organizations. I'd love to hear more about it because I'm I'm not familiar with that. Absolutely. And and it seems as though it's kind of a a step sister, if you will, to cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Talks about um, just the security of information around the actual business. So again, if anyone is in that sphere, I'd personally love to hear from you because that's fascinating. Kind of moving into that piece of of having to monitor storytelling around our actual data because sometimes data it isn't always an asset sometimes too much data can be as um as limiting as too little you know so those types of things in in that balance for data management so definitely research in your research on the topic did you come across any examples of how an organization is leveraging that that competency you know like specific use cases or or ways they're using that? You know, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know. But let me put it in the comments when we do publish the episode. And I can um, link to the case study that I looked at and everyone can have a conversation around that because I think that's a great question. Yeah, that sounds interesting. That's that's what I love about these hot topics is there's always I don't know or there's something new that I didn't realize was was kind of an emerging trend or topic. So that's cool. Yeah. And I always try to pick like the most controversial or weird ones to talk to you about, <laughs> you know, us that, that the triggers. Are, yeah. The really things you know are going to trigger me or the audience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I almost did pick a research about um, woke business processes, but I felt as though that was a non-touchable for the moment. So maybe if we feel super controversial, we'll get into that. But Ooh, yeah, we um, should <laughs> really get the audience engaged and riled up because one, you know, either, either way you're going <laughs> to yeah. be some strong opinions on that. I imagine. Yeah. You're darned if you do and darned if you don't, if you will. Yeah, so exactly. absolutely. So speaking about, about kind of employee or user generated resources, this, um, this concept of uh, ERGs or employee research resource groups, excuse me. Um, basically, these are entities within the organization that might have a specific demographic that might have a specific cause that they're working for. Say, um, maybe it's uh, an environmentalist group within your organization. Maybe it's like a women in tech group within your organization. Those different pieces. And what this uh, this research had called for is left in a digital transformation. So they're already affiliated. They're already have a, some sort of communication structure foundation, right? So leveraging their overall diversity in that conversation through things like assessments, polling, giving um, an amplification to organizational change messaging, those types of things. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really and scalable tactic to kind of tap into groups or organizations, subcultures within your business that might already be established and could really be an asset to that digital 
transformation conversation on both the feedback side when it comes to functionality, needs, requirements, but also on the organizational change, communication, distribution, and amplifying side. Um, so wanted to get your feedback on, on if you've seen that that kind of model used in your different client work or, or what your feelings were around using those established groups as an asset to understanding your company's culture and making your digital transformation more successful. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You say that because uh, actually just yesterday I was, um, I went down a rabbit hole on TikTok, which is really easy to do if, if you mm -hmm. haven't used the um, app before it's highly addictive. But when I was on it, um, I was going down a rabbit hole of TikToks and related comments and threads related to how to how to onboard people and create stickiness in today's day and age of remote or hybrid work environments. Mm -hmm. And there's a, obviously a whole debate happening in this this mm -hmm. social media thread about whether or not you know uh, work from home is here to stay or whether or not it should be here to stay. And there's that um, debate going on. But at the same time. There's a thread happening, and, and I think there were a couple of follow-up TikTok videos about people giving recommendations or advice on how to onboard and get someone engaged in an organization when they're not going to physically meet anyone from the team. And one of the things they suggested, they, I don't know that they call them ERGs or employee resource groups, mm -hmm. but they call them like basically employee uh, groups. And so mm -hmm. it probably is the same thing where they're talking about um, you know common interests or uh, even unrelated to business. You know, it could be. Mm -hmm by or you know um hiking or whatever just personal interest that you're you're sort of creating those those subgroups um and they were suggesting that you could use slack and teams and other social media tools internal communication tools to create that collaboration and that connection uh internally with employees so i, I think it's a really real thing i think it's highly relevant in today's day and age and even if the world goes back to at the very least some sort of hybrid work environment where office workers are at times still going back mm -hmm. in the office or in some cases um they're you know in a lot of the world people are fully back at work and the work from home thing is not it's not a thing like it is in some parts of the world so mm -hmm. uh either in any case though regardless of what the model is i think that what you're talking about can be highly effective in creating that engagement and creating it just a a, a more of an attachment to the organization Absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's a really interesting concept that may be a, a low-hanging fruit a lot of times, especially if you're going through um, different exercises to kind of pull the readiness of your organization. You know, the initial steps to understand, are we ready for this new technology of this huge investment, both financially and from the resource side? It may be a great opportunity to really learn more about um, about that ability or the appetite without, you know, thinking about how do I make sure I can get groups together? Well, going, you know, going to the actual groups, is, it seems like a, a helpful opportunity, but I had never heard it kind of in the conversation of, of that space before. So just an, an right. interesting observation. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so then about today is a really interesting study that I, I found about AI and autism. And the reason I wanted to talk about this today was kind of a follow-up to, um, we talked about responsible AI a few weeks back, a few episodes back, mm -hmm. and what that looks like. And so we see bigger tech companies uh, moving away from AI, like in, in facial recognition or, you know, really hard demographic data because they 
feel as though that's not using that technology isn't a representation of their organization and doesn't celebrate the diversity of their team members or customers. So we talked a little bit about what that meant. And so this is kind of a flip the script on that and using technology to transcend cultural identities or barriers to actually diagnose uh, a a disorder or a health condition specifically within children. So this specific study um, looked at at children that spoke English and then Cantonese as well. And so what they would do is they'd actually give the child the same book to read. It's called Frog, Where Are You? When whatever language they had. So basically what this did is the AI software would take different data points, different frequency data points, all of these different um, pieces that goes into a typical autism diagnosis. And they could identify those the same way spoke English versus Cantonese. So they talked about how it really made the diagnosis of something like autism accessible to maybe a parts of the world that typically wouldn't be in um that more technology proficient culture, emerging markets we talk a lot about. Um, it's more of an efficient way, a cost efficient, taking a lot of the toll off of health providers and going through these diagnostic processes um, and leveraging the, the technology. But most, of, most importantly, it transcends culture and brings that opportunity to get that really important diagnosis to all people across the world. So I, I thought it was an interesting contrast to kind of labeling AI as almost um, a way to discriminate against your employees or your your customers. This is a completely different lens, right? Using AI and technology to bring this offering to, you know, a demographic, people, uh, countries, those types of things that wouldn't typically have that access or couldn't get it quickly and affordably. So I wondered if if you could kind of weigh in to those different ways to look at artificial intelligence and emerging technologies in ways that we're we're kind of scared of it. We we don't want it to uh, blur kind of PC boundaries, if you will. Um, but it also has the opportunity to bring really important diagnostics to areas that might not have that access or even more efficiently than trying to wait for a healthcare provider, especially in today's day and age with the, the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic and kind of the, the unrest that there is in the, in the healthcare industry. So wanted to get your feedback on that, kind of a really interesting study. Yeah, that's super interesting, and it and it's a good uh, segue into our, our first mm -hmm. set of guests where we talk about the multinational um, transformations. Uh, but to answer your question, though, I, I think, you know, this is a great example of AI, AI's full potential or, or an example of how mm -hmm. AI can be used when used responsibly and when used uh, effectively. It can it can actually change things for the better um, for society and for the human race. I mean, you're, you're talking about a situation where you're trying to diagnose something, which that in, in and of itself is going to be subject to the imperfections of humans and humans trying to diagnose autism or any other mm -hmm. um, health issue for that matter. Um, so you've got that limit, you've got human limitations that AI is helping remediate and you're taking large amounts of data and making meaning of that data in a way that humans, you know, the human brain just can't in some cases. So I, I think it's a great example of how the, you know, this is sort of the low hanging fruit of how AI can be, you know, really a game changer 
in the industry once we have more of these use cases of actual usage versus you know i think with the problem with ai right now is it's sort of like a nebulous futuristic thing that's here mm -hmm. now but we aren't quite what sure how it? it's going to get yeah. used yeah what is it does it mean i'm going to lose my job does it mean yeah. it's terminators coming for me <laughs> yeah terminator yeah exactly like you uh like you you talk about in one of our uh I think it's one of our YouTube videos or TikTok videos mm -hmm. on on the third stage channel. Um, you you know you talk about that that fear that organizations or humans have about AI. But this is a good example of where it shouldn't be something to fear. It should be something that augments what the healthcare industry is doing. It augments mm -hmm. the knowledge that doctors and and medical professionals have, and really takes it to another level to where you know it it, it uncovers some of those blind spots and just makes better collective decisions based on massive amounts of data across cultures and languages and things like that. So I think it's a great, it's a, it's a really cool study that I was not aware of. Yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll keep an eye on that. I think the great part about these conversations is we can um, openly talk about, you know, the, the drawbacks of a need for human intervention, but technology also is a really beautiful asset um, to, to, everything when it comes to human experience and culture, if it's utilized in the right way, right? Right. So I think that's kind of uh, the thesis there. And of course, you know, we'll continue to talk about it here. But like you said, it is an excellent segue into our multinational panel that you had um, with our uh, multinational team here, our global team at Third Stage, which was a, such a great segment. So I'm really excited to get to dig in and ask some questions that I made um, from our live stream there with with our um, stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. And that'll be a, that is a good, a perfect transition into that discussion. We're going to, after a quick break, come back and we'll have uh, three guests on the show. They're going to join me. Um, Kyler, you're joining in the background asking questions as well. But on camera with me in, in the main part of the conversation will be uh, Clifford Martin, who's the lead of our uh, Africa office in Third Stage Africa, will have Cliff or um, Wayne Holtham, who is the head of our Asia Pacific office, um, Third Stage Asia Pacific, and then we'll also have Michelle Weiss, who uh, represents our Latin American uh, presence in region. And I'll I'll be there just to sort of fill in the gaps and add to the conversation, and maybe represent North America while we're at it. Um, so it'll be a good good conversation. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have the um, Next conversation, which is best practices for multinational digital transformation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 74. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. We're both with uh, Third Stage Consulting Group. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out there. 
And uh, we also do Tuesday live streams, as Kyler mentioned before the break. Uh, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern time in the United States, uh, we do a live stream that streams to LinkedIn, YouTube, fa Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, we use that as part of our uh, podcast content for this show. So be sure to check that out as well. I'm excited for our next guests. Uh, we have three guests joining me here today um, that are going to talk about best practices in multinational digital transformations. I really wanted to have these guests on to get people from these local regions that we're going to talk about to discuss how transformations differ in different parts of the world and what some of the nuances are and what some of the differences are culturally and organizationally, operationally, technologically, and really dig into what we need to be thinking about perhaps a little bit differently if we're operating in a multinational environment versus if we're doing uh, just a localized transformation. So uh, I'm going to introduce the guests here in just a moment, uh, but the whole idea here was that we would have a representation from each of the major regions that we operate as a team. Uh, the only region that we don't have represented where we do have an office is out of Europe um, due to timing and time zones and scheduling and that sort of thing. We couldn't get the European uh, people on the phone or on the conversation, but we have most of the world covered with uh, the, these guests here today. So with all that being said, let's welcome Michelle Clifford and Wayne to the show. Um, I guess just to start, um, when we think about, and, I, and maybe I'll start with you, Clifford, on this question, and we'll see what, what uh, Wayne and Michelle have to add here. But when you think about multinational transformations, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen with multinational digital transformations when you compare it to more of a localized transformation? What are some of the things that come to mind? Yes, thank you, Eric. Great question. Um, so certainly in the African region, you know, I do think there are, there are a couple of unique challenges, skills most definitely, um, and, and, that, and, and particularly technical skills. And of course, as some of these, uh, some of the major ERP platforms uh, come to a, an, a period where they need to be upgraded or the new or the latest version implemented, thinking particularly of SAP, which is very S4, which is very prevalent in this region. Skills are becoming a real issue. We're we seeing our clients struggle to get those skills aboard, and and, and not only individual skills, um, you know, th through the marketplace, independent consultants and so on, but certainly with some of the big systems integrators as well. So I think I think skills is a particular issue that we're seeing, and be interested. To, to hear um, our colleagues' perspectives from the different regions around the world and whether that's something you're experiencing. I do think that perhaps the, 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 the maturity, the knowledge, the, um, the, 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 the ability of our executives within our clients to actually manage these large implementations um, is perhaps something that needs a little bit of help as well. And we do find that we are often asked by clients to come in and, and assist the executive and walk them through a typical roadmap of what a digital transformation entails. So I'd like to maybe just, you know, park it on those two issues over there. I think skills and then executive know-how um, and acumen, I think, is, is, is something that we find um, perhaps a little bit uh, not at the, at the required level of maturity in this part of the world. What do you think um, the driver of that is? I want to come to come back to Wayne and Michelle too and see what their thoughts are. But but w just before we kind of move past that point about skills and competencies, what do you, is is that a um, is that a lack of focus from the vendors and the system integrators on developing those competencies locally? Is it uh, the education system in Africa? What, what would you describe as sort of the root cause of that? Yes. Um, so, so I do think that that there, there are other factors that, um, and perhaps you know, unrelated to business, perhaps more social, um, geographical, regional type factors that 
that have led to a bit of a brain drain, the so-called brain drain in this part of the part of the world. Uh, probably a little bit, I know it's probably an overused word, but globalization, you know, and specifically these days with hybrid working models, um, you know, skills are able to, 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 to work on projects that are perhaps more lucrative and perhaps where there's a greater need. So we do have traditionally have quite good skills in Africa, let me say that as well. But I think they are quickly snatched up as some of the global players and deployed perhaps on larger multinational projects that are taking place um, in this part of the world. Got it. Okay, yeah, so. Eric, I'll second that on, on the skills. Um, we just um, had a client uh, select uh, SAP uh, as their ERP. And one of the big concerns in that, in that particular project is the skills to be able to do you know, the projects. Because uh, especially now and with the pandemic kind of opening up uh, borders, I think um, mm -hmm. some people are getting paid a lot more to um, to do some work that you know they're getting paid in U.S. dollars, let's say, instead of in um, pesos or whatnot, and so they're choosing to do those um, those jobs. So the reason why they you know one of the reasons uh, that they went with um, uh, SAP was that concern, right? They have those skills internally; they didn't want to lose those, mm -hmm. um, and now they have to worry about <clears throat> excuse me about losing those internally. So. Yeah. And, and this is uh, what you're talking about. This case study or this example or client is one based out of Latin America, right? Uh, yes, sort correct. of a multinational Latin American company. And I, I think I know what you're talking about mm -hmm. um, with that. So that's a, a good point. So it's not just isolated to the challenge isn't just isolated to Africa. You're, you're seeing it. In I Latin think America. it's a global issue right now. Um, yeah. Even in the United so States, where a lot of these software companies and system integrators are based, um, even in the U.S., there's a sort of mixed uh, quality of can of candidates or resources uh, available. So I, I think that I think it's a good point. Um, what are you seeing, Wayne, on, on that front? Um, now I'll come back to the broader question, but in Asia Pacific, do you see that same challenge, or do you see things differently as it relates to skills and competency gaps? Uh, the skills, I think it's it is it is a global problem. It's one of those things of uh, and what you're finding on major projects that you've actually got people that are working, you know, say out of the US or out of uh, um, Asia and those sort of um, working on uh, purely Australian-based um, uh, deployments. So, so you can see there's that, that real drain of being able to have skills available um, uh, for, for these large-scale projects. Right, right. So what... One um, of the other things I want to just add there, you know, we talked about, <laughs> was talking about uh, you know, the differences across regions as such. For us in APAC, we've got very many cultures. And so one of the things that you've got to consider when you're actually looking at, um, at, at deploying multinational or, multi, or you know, multi-country um, uh, deployments, you've got many cultures that you're actually dealing with and different ways of working and those sort of things. And so uh, different, different um, languages, different, uh, you know, right across the board. So there's a lot of challenges even in that, trying to get consistency of um, of solution uh, for them. Yeah. So even even if you have a say a multinational transformation that's somewhat limited to just Asia Pacific, um, and you're not even dealing with Africa and the Americas and, and that sort of thing or, or Middle East, even just within Asia Pacific, you just have such a diverse set of cultures and um, languages and things of that nature to consider as well. You know, ranging from the 
more of the westernized English speaking Australia to, you know, some of the other countries in Asia that um, are, are not so. so it's, it's well, really still good. emerging. That's, that's the thing, you know, there are emerging cultures and emerging economies and those sort of things. And so there is difference in the way that they actually are set up and operate. Right. It's a great point. Um, what else in, in terms of um, the, the diverse cultures, um, are there, within Asia Pacific, Wayne, is there anything else that you can think of that would be some of the some of the biggest challenges that you see with with the multinational uh, transformations that we haven't covered? Um, I, I think that thing of um, being able to make a solution um, fit all of, all of the different regions as such or all of the different countries. And so uh, it's it's trying to mix the localization with the standardization, which often there's a there's a disconnect there. Um, and, and that's always a, a difficult challenge. Many, many will try and roll out a standardised version, but um, but but it, it struggles to actually get engagement in the in the various regions as such because the localization doesn't work. So, hmm. yeah, yeah, and I want to come back to that point actually. Um, the whole localization uh, piece of it, because that is a big, you know, obviously a big part of digital transformations is trying to find that, trying to find that balance between sort of standardized common operating model versus the localized needs of a transformation. I want to come back to that because I, I think that alone is a huge uh, a huge thread that we could spend a lot of time on. Um, what about when we look at technologies? Maybe I'll start with you, Wayne, on this one. Uh, when you look at the different types of technologies that organizations might use or deploy throughout different parts of the world, what do you see that's um, different in Asia Pacific in terms of either the types of technology being deployed or the vendors that are more favored than maybe perhaps other parts of the world? What what sort of nuances are you seeing in, in Asia Pacific that come to mind? There's, there's, a, there's a, a real, uh, I suppose, mature market for the SAPs of the world. Um, and, and then it sort of tears down from there, your oracles. Um, it's, it's starting to change and shift, I think, because uh, all of a sudden people going to S4 are a little bit wary. Uh, that uh, will it deliver on, on what we what we want and um, how much of a business uh, how, how mature is it as a, as a solution I think that's starting to open the doors for some other product vendors to actually come in and 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 show their offers that are more targeted to specific uh, industries and and sectors as such and I think that that's what we're starting to see but the problem we have there is the skills gap so you know SAP because of its maturity is a lot more, People that have experience with SAP, there's a lot less when it comes to you know your your, your oracles and your um, you know your your infos and your, your, your some of your Microsoft stuff, and so that's a little bit harder to be able to uh, do a large scale project where you're actually deploying and needing those skills. So it's a bigger drop from you know sort of the the in favor or the favored technologies like SAP. There's a big drop from there as you get down into the tier two or lesser known systems. Is that what you're saying? Sort of a dichotomy. Yeah, yeah, and and even uh, an experience a couple of years ago where uh, one software vendor had won the deal for the day that they, they were all ready to go, but then couldn't find enough. Or they couldn't resource the project, so um, it eventually was given to SAP uh, to actually resource because they had resources available to them. So, so it, it does get that bad uh, for some vendors where they just can't resource the project, even though they've actually won the project. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a big difference between winning the project and saying you have the resources and then actually delivering those resources. Exactly right. Yeah, there's often yeah. a breakdown there. Mm-hmm. How about you, Michelle? What about in uh, Latin America? Do you see any anything uh, additional that you would add in terms of uh, types of technologies that are 
favored or viewed differently perhaps in the region compared to other parts of the world? Um, no, I think it's very similar. I mean, I think um, trust in those companies that have been around for a while um, is uh, something that I've seen, you know, with my clients, they know, like you said, SAP, right? They know SAP, they've heard about SAP, there's a lot of people there that that have those skills. So I think it's very similar. Also, um, again, I've only worked with kind of some larger multinationals in Latin America, not smaller. So I guess, you know, I would have to see that, um, you know, how that would pan out on a selection project. But yeah, so far, it's been the SAPs and Microsoft's and Oracle's, but definitely a leaning towards um, where there's more skills and, and knowledge. Yeah, and less likelihood of just trying out a newer or an emerging mm-hmm. vendor. Yeah, is be less... like who, what's the neighboring company using? Okay, SAP, all right, well, you know, SAP sounds good too. Um, yeah, but when you start to talk about, say, Infor, Epicor, maybe, you know, right. big, big companies, well-known mm-hmm. companies, but not nearly as well-known as SAP, you know, global scale. Right. Yeah, that trust is in there if they have if they people that they know in other companies you know aren't using them it's, it's a little harder to sell them on it yeah and even if there's a system out there that's better potentially but it's lesser known it's sort of like perception is reality in, right. in this case to where they're gonna have a maybe a bias toward the the better known bigger I mean, name. We, that's that's what we try to help them do right make the decision based on the business needs and and what would be good for them but um, yeah sometimes it's hard, hard convincing. Yeah. Easier said than done. Yeah. Um, how about you, Clifford, in Africa, any, uh, any other nuances from a sort of a technological <laughs> preference perspective? Yeah, Eric, I think this, this, this quite an interesting trend that I'm seeing in the, in the Africa market. And uh, I don't know if this is true for the rest of the world as well, but we're seeing lots of organizations still struggling to bed down their, their back office ERP. You know, those, that kind of uh, generic type of business process areas or HR finance, supply chain, asset utilization, et cetera. Um, so, and, and at the same time, they're also embarking on some type of digital transformation journey. So, you, so it's quite interesting what's finding organizations kind of just trying to decide, you know, how do we, how do we deploy our funds and resources and focus uh, because we're kind of finding this dual strategy of we, we, we haven't quite better done our ERP yet, it's still giving us problems. But at the same time, we know we need to be doing something in the digital transformation space. Very often, it's a case of we're not quite sure what we should be doing. But and then you get some organisations, and 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 this is kind of the minority, I think, who are who are trying to use their, their digital ERP platforms to drive transformation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but still, a lot of organisations um, selecting different technologies and focus very much on the front end, uh, more trying to drive customer centricity. From a, from a digital space, and then on the in terms of the back office, still trying to um, you know get that foundation in place, uh, and still quite a lot of churn and upheaval, trying to upgrade or re-implement or whatever the case may be. So, uh, so lot lots happening, quite interesting all around. I think. Right, yeah, for sure. We're here discussing best practices in multinational digital transformations. We'll continue the conversation as soon as we we return from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 74. We're here with a panel discussion talking about best practices in multinational digital transformations. I wanted to cover a couple questions here. Um, one in particular that I want to start with is actually from Kyler, uh, the Transformation Ground Control podcast host who's, who's listening in into the background here. Um, but the question it, that Kyler has is, what should organizations do if they're ex they experience this gap in support in the marketplace? And how does it affect implementation timelines? So we've sort of identified this uh, skill set competency gap as a as a global problem, not just limited to Africa or APAC or or even the Americas or Middle East. It's sort of a global problem. What do you, what do organizations do to mitigate that risk, and and how how do we accommodate or adjust our implementation timeframes to account for that? Maybe we'll start with you, Clifford. Yeah, so 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 I think it's a, it's a very valid question. Thanks, Kyla. Certainly, what I've seen. Um, within some of the implementations that I've been involved with is that organizations struggle to leverage the, the, the full breadth and depth of the technology because they simply do not have the skills. Um, and therefore, you know, one ends up with a, and absolutely impacts on the timelines. Um, and one one ends up with, a, with a, a solution being deployed into the business environment and uh, not fully leveraged. And, and, and I've mm. certainly seen that and or, or only certain aspects of it leveraged. So I think that's a very definite impact from a skills perspective. Um, and of course, there are, there, there are other areas as well, the ability to do comprehensive testing, comprehensive data migration, um, training, etc. So I, I do really think that it affects the overall uh, success of these ERP projects in, 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 quite, a, in quite a big way. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. How about you, Wayne? What do you, what do you see? Yeah, what, one of the one of the challenges with the tight labor market and uh, getting resources to deploy is the constant churn of of consultants moving from one project to another. I think Michelle mentioned there that you know that the, the uh, people get paid more, so they'll move from one project to a different project, and that causes a lot of disruption to the to the project um, in, in two ways. One is that you know. Uh, the the uh, the obviously the intent of how the project would be deployed gets changed. The more people come in and become involved in it, okay. extends timelines, um, and so so what you you often get that scope creep as well because people say, oh, what do you think of this and why don't we do that? And so uh, without knowing the background and uh, as well as that ongoing, you know, a re. Um, re-onboarding people onto the project and then bring them up, that, that extends a timeline. So those two factors uh, are really, um, uh, you know, really, really impact projects. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Michelle? Do, would you add anything to that or anything additional that you're seeing? 
Well, I mean, there's two different types of um, people that you need on the project, right? There are the internal and the SIs. So um, I think finding the SIs will have the people, right? They're hiring specifically for those roles. They might even be taking them from the companies, you know? Um, So um, I definitely think uh, leaning on the SIs a little bit for some of that uh, knowledge. would be a, a, a good solution to to fill in, you know, your lack of internal knowledge. But um, but yeah, definitely that's that's a huge issue. You need to have people that know the system enough to be able to do damage, as I say, you know, to be able to push the SIs to 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 really utilize the system the way it's supposed to. If you you know you don't know what you don't know, so if you just let them do whatever they want, right? So um, I think there's a, a balance between the internal, and that's probably the hardest to get, than BSIs that are coming in and, and they, you know, this is what they do. So, yeah. Um, but again, yeah. you know, those people could also leave. I mean, obviously, but um, I mean, one thing is to to try to have the SIs kind of commit some of those people right to your project and say if they're still employed with you they're not going to any other project but mine until this is done right so putting that type of language into a contract or a discussion i think would be another way to make sure that you have um you know the right people on the project and some co- uh, continuity of, of skills yeah yeah i think it's a great point if, if i can just touch on something on the point michelle made you know eric when we talk about skills we tend to focus almost exclusively on the SI, but it's a very good point about the internal skills and, and as we know, the SIs often come with this pairing model where there's kind of a like-for-like in terms of the resources and roles they bring. They're kind of like a counterpart within the organization. Um, funny enough, often, except at the program oversight and program management level, they kind of like to occupy that space. But I think where I'm going with this, it's so important that, that organizations are able to have some internal project management, internal governance, business representation, data cleansing, change management counterparts, so that you can transfer ownership. And also that one can, ex- that the, the client can exercise proper oversight over the over the project. So, so I think it's a very good point, Michelle. We often think about the technical and external skills, but almost equally important and possibly more importantly, having that internal skills and a proper structure and having organized yourselves accordingly as a client or appropriately as a client with the right roles, skills, structures, et cetera, is, it's very important. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's a great point. And it, I was actually thinking that as, as you guys were all responding to that question in that, you know, one of the dynamics that I think gets fueled here is it's ironic that, you know, even the system integrators struggle with finding the right resources and bringing the right competencies to the table. But the irony is that a lot of organizations, because they themselves struggle with that same challenge, they rely on the SI even more, you know, sort of like that unhealthy dependency on the system integrator because they don't have the resources internally. So then the question becomes, you know, can you build that competency or start to build that competency internally and in-house so that you're, A, you're able to be more of an active participant in the transformation, your own people, rather than being too dependent on the system integrator, but B, you know, longer term, you ensure that you're not becoming too dependent on the system integrator. And when the system integrator goes away, um, you're, you've got those competencies left with you in-house to where you can continue to manage what needs to be managed. I think that's a, a dynamic that, that comes into play here as well. 
Indeed. Um, one one thing I want to clarify there. This is actually a comment or a question from uh, Douglas on LinkedIn. He asked for some clarification on what SI means. So, and I take that for granted. Sometimes I, I tend to just throw out consulting buzzwords like that. SI is system integrator or another maybe uh, acronym for that would be implementation partner, technical implementation partner. It's basically the company that comes in, they specialize in one type of technology and they help you deploy that technology. They help you design, configure, build it, deploy it, that sort of thing. So that's when we say SI, that's what we're referring to just for the, uh, for those of you that don't know that. Um, another, uh, we're getting some more audience questions here um, that are they're pretty interesting. Um, here's one that I, I wanted to get some perspective on. Uh, this is from Gasan over on LinkedIn. And, and by the way, we're streaming. I didn't mention this before, but we're streaming to uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter um, on several different channels. So thanks to everyone who's joining here live. Um, but Gasan's on uh, LinkedIn and he asked the question with uh, challenges with family led businesses tend to have cultures that would hinder a transformation, partly due to lack of accountability by the owners to the management levels. Um, I don't know if that's true for all, you know, family businesses, but I guess I'll ask, maybe I'll spin that question a little bit differently and ask, you know, do you see that family owned business dynamic being common in your respective regions? And if so, how does the, the family owned dynamic affect uh, a transformation? What, what are your thoughts, Wayne, uh, in Asia Pacific? Yeah, yeah we, we experience that, experience that a bit is where you've got, you know, a, a, a business that's grown over the years. There's a, there's a number of, um, of family members fit right through the hierarchy and uh, you know and and some of the some of the decisions are often difficult to be made because you know there, there's the, the the thought that they don't want to upset um, you know uh, senior members of the family as such and so it's not really like a, a dynamic that an organization has that that you know you're managing you're running it's all it's that it's that very very uh, difficult situation of of you know upsetting and and uh, respecting uh, certain members of the hierarchy within the organisation that is actually family members. So, so that is a challenge. Uh, definitely, we see that in the in the Asia Pacific region. Yeah. Yeah. How about in Africa, Clifford? Yeah, Eric, I would say it's not a, a, a dynamic that that's really um, played out. You know, either in a positive or negative way in, in terms of the clients that I've worked with. Um, so, I, I don't really have a strong comment either way on that one. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I, I've had an experience, a couple experiences where um, it has been um, family owned businesses. And I think the, the challenge there is between them really trying to be open right to the process, uh, but then really wanting to do what they want to do. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, you can take someone through a process, but if they don't are not hearing what they want to hear, I think maybe with family owned businesses, it might be a little bit more easier for them to say, well, this is what I want versus a non-family owned business. Um, so we've had that challenge where uh, we've gone through a whole process, but then it's like, mm, it's not what I wanted to hear. So, you know, uh, let's go this way, even though they went through the process of being open with their employees and letting them give feedback and all of that. Right. So uh, yeah. I think that was a good question. Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, uh, Cosmos over on LinkedIn, who is joining from the United States, um, says not all families, as you said, but apparently some businesses really don't care to grow beyond the current level they are. And maybe that's the, you know, more of the bigger issues. How do you get alignment on on that that growth? Um, 
and I guess, you know, let me come back to that point because I think the, the overall global alignment um, is, is, a, is a big topic I want to make sure we get to. Um, and, and actually, why don't we just jump into that now? It wasn't the order I was planning on going, but since it came up, we might as well jump into that now. Um, when you're when you're assembling, let's start with this. You know, when you're assembling a global team, let's start with the team you assemble, and then we'll get into you know sort of how you get the representation or how you get the uh, the perspectives and the the alignment uh, with that team. But let's start with how you form a global team. You know, what what advice or recommendation or tips would you suggest for an organization that's trying to assemble uh, any sort of a, a global project team? What are your, what are your thoughts on that, Wayne? Um, I think, I think for a global team, you've got to have uh, a right level of mandate so that, uh, and, and the view that whatever you're putting together as that team, it will be representative of the solution that's going to be delivered. And so, so that, that's a, a, a key thing. So you need the, the, the decision-making power, you need the solution that actually is probably agreed across the group. So, so you need representation of, of the, of the various members or stakeholders of the different regions um, so that you actually do have that input. You're not putting in a solution that just really won't work. And that's where you get a lot of pushback. But um, you, you do need to be able to have that view that, you know, you, you're, you're looking to be able to standardise and harmonise across a much wider um, demographic and region than just putting it in the local area that, that's probably less of that concern. So you do need a lot of input from the various stakeholders in that localization region and making sure that you're not putting in something that's going to really uh, cause a disruption or not actually work. Right. Yeah. It has to work for that, for that local, that local region or that local office, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, how about you? How about you, Clifford? What would you add to that as far as how to, how to assemble that global transformation team? Yeah, I mean, I think the the issues around representation and ensuring that you know there's there's common and broad ownership across a diverse uh, range of, of 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 companies or subsidiaries or geographical regions or whatever is obviously an important one and perhaps you know certainly and a point of interest for the change management team. But I think uh, Eric, I think that, that one has to decide up front to what extent you know where do you want the accountability to sit and and. And, and how much of that is, is going to be internal? Is this, is this going to be an outsourced, a largely outsourced team, a co-sourced, an in-sourced team? And who are the different stakeholder groups that need to be represented in those teams? And, and, and I think we often approach structuring a team from quite a technical perspective. But, you know, just very quickly, I always think there's kind of about five keys or five or six key stakeholder groups. There's going to be the external vendors and SIs. There's going to be the business community, there's going to be the executive that are, that have ultimate oversight and, re, and accountability for the success of the project. Often the IT department is going to play a key role. And then, of course, there's going to be the project team itself, which might be a combination of all those. And and these different uh, stakeholder groups and, and, and structures often have different agendas, differing expectations, different uh, definitions of what constitutes success and need to be managed differently. So I think one... I kind of like to, to look at that that global team from the perspective of who are the different stakeholder groups that have need to be represented or are essential or have a vested interest in the success of this program and, and how do we configure and organize ourselves to ensure that there are that we manage each of those stakeholder groups and we understand their contributions and expectations. So, and, and one of one of the things just to add there, um, Clifford, is the is the fact that many times when you build a team that's a global team you might bring in senior managers that are different hierarchies 
within the different regions. And so you've sort of got to build that team so that it is project focused, not, uh, you know, the organisational structure focused because you can get where a senior manager who who is not necessarily uh, directly, um, you know, related to the project as such, but but ha can pull rank and that can that can cause that instability Absolutely. in the delivery. Yeah. Yeah, and we, and we often make that mistake uh, where, you know, when we're selecting change agents or within the business, we tend to go for the, you know, at a certain level of management, but those aren't necessarily the influencers, you know, the guy in, in the workshop or the factory, the foreman or supervisor, often wields a lot more influence than some manager who visits once a month or something. So I think it's it's a very good point you make. One needs to select people on their, on their kind of their, their, their contributions and this and this and their specific roles that they can play rather than on a particular level within the organization. Yeah, and just to build on that before I come over to Michelle to get her insights here, but just because it's related to what you guys are just saying, uh, is there a problem if different areas appoint people of differing seniorities to the project? And that's a great question. So in other words, in the, you know, in Latin America, we've got some C-level people or some high-level, mid-level management type people. But, you know, in, in Africa, they're they're offering up more junior resources internally to support the project team you know how do you deal with that dynamic should you have a consistent you know resource allocation sort of strategy or, or how do you guys see that from a from a global perspective from my mind it's you've got to have that project focus we're delivering a project and mm -hmm. the and the hierarchies uh, that that may be attached to those people need to be actually set to one side uh, and those pro those those people's roles redefined to actually here's what I am on this project, not here's what I am within the company and what holding, uh, what the standing I hold. Yeah. Well, and one point to make there too is that for this size of projects, these people are going to be full-time on the project. So I don't know if a lot of companies kind of realize that they need to backfill those positions during an implementation this large. So that gives you a chance to then say, okay, here's the project team. You're all, you know, we're all equal here as far as, you know, your opinions and whatnot, because someone else is doing your job. They're not also still filling that role. So now they're part of a project team They're you know, so I think it's a good chance to set those um, expectations that, you know, yes, you might be a little more senior in your regular role, but here, um, you know, we're all uh, the same. Um, and Another comment that was made was, you know, the idea of having people that understand the local, you know, the localizations of a project. But I think it's important to have someone overseeing that understands the differences overall, as well as what can be the same. Right. So when you say standardization, it's someone that really understands where you could push a little bit to those people that are like, well, this is how I've done it. You know, I want to keep doing it. But is able to really say, really, is that really how you have to do it right? And, and be able to challenge a little bit and not just let people say, well, this is how I've been doing it, so let's implement it that way. So I think a good yeah. balance between people that know the very specific processes as well as people who can understand the overall um, uh, you know, project and desire to streamline and be able to push and, and have a little bit of influence, I think, too, in, in saying, no, this is how it's, it's going to go, be going yeah. forward. And, and, and maybe to add to that, um, 
Eric, I, I think what's also extremely important is defining the governance structures up front. You know, what is the decision-making process? So what are the key deliverables per phase and who gets to make, who gets to approve it? Some type of racy model, you know, res responsible, accountable, consulted form. And, and I think when you have a very defined decision-making process, who, will, who makes decisions around what based on what criteria, it's a lot easier for someone that's pretty junior because, uh, you know, there's a specific governance structure within which the, these decisions are made and which approvals are made of the various deliverables. So I, I, I quite like to have that to the, have that defined right up front so everybody understands what their roles are, irrespective of their position in the company. Yeah, yeah. and I, I also think having, um, if, if change management wasn't mentioned, Teresa will kill me. So, um, but having someone that, that understands how to communicate with the different areas. So, you know, we, you were mentioning that, you know, Asia Pacific, it's a lot of different countries, you know, they speak different languages. Um, Latin America is the same. I mean, we mostly speak Spanish, um, a little bit of Portuguese, maybe a couple other languages. But so people assume that communication should be the same. Uh, the way that you deal with people is the same. But countries have much, you know, very different cultures, uh, the way that they even say things. Um, I just had a, an experience where I had something translated for a um, Colombian uh, client and a Guatemalan client wanted to make all sorts of word changes because for them, their employees weren't going to understand or really, you know, assimilate what we were trying to say based on the words we had chosen in another country. So um, I think uh, having that change management, communication, know-how of how different countries and regions um, uh, need to be communicated to or, or you know, even word-wise could be, even be a big difference. So, yeah. We're here discussing best practices in multinational digital transformations. We'll continue the conversation as soon as we, we return from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 74. We're here with a panel discussion talking about best practices in multinational digital transformations. It seems like in, in various parts of the world too, if you're dealing with senior level management and they're the ones involved in the project, they're, they're more likely to speak sort of a global common language like English. But then when you get mm -hmm. to mid-level management down to the frontline employees, you're less likely to have that sort of, um, you know, English speaking commonality or any sort of language mm -hmm. commonality for that matter. Um, and, and so, you know, I know, for example, the, the Colombian client, that was a, a talking point in our project and a talking point in that transformation in terms of, yeah, in English there, but we've got to translate stuff for people that aren't as comfortable uh, with, a, with a common language like that. 
Yeah. And how about you, Clifford? What um, I don't think you've answered uh, that question yet, but any other anything you would add to that that thread that we're we're chatting about here with seniority? You may have already answered it, so if you have, I can move on. But um, did you have anything to add there? No, no, I think, uh, you know, there was some comments earlier about uh, the role of executive and so on. And I think uh, in terms of decision making and, and oversight and accountability and bringing this all together, I think it is so important to ensure that the uh, executive understands what these projects entail, what the potential pitfall, what are the critical decisions that they're going to be asked to make and what stage in the project. So I'd, I really think having some type of boot camp up front and uh, walking them through this this journey and um, helping them navigate it, uh, I think is fundamentally important to address a whole lot of the issues that we that are coming up here. It right. all starts at the top, you know, if it doesn't kind of flow down, it it doesn't happen. Yeah, makes makes uh, makes total sense. Um, here's a interesting comment from Dirk over on LinkedIn. He says, how much of a transformation is actually about digital slash technology, maybe our focus should lie more on people transformation. I think that's what he meant was people uh, transformation. It looks like he had an autocorrect uh, issue there like we all do. Um, thoughts on that as far as, you know, I don't, I, I know it's somewhat of a loaded question, but uh, what, what are you guys' thoughts? Uh, you know, Wayne, what are your I, I, thoughts on that coming? I think it is a great point in the sense that, you know, we get, we, we head, head into these uh, transformations thinking about technology when really, that's probably 20% of it at best. Um, you know, the 80% is actually how the people will operate it, what processes they'll do to do that, um, how, you know, how, how they'll actually function within the organisation that, that will be enabled by technology. Uh, whereas we focus so much on the build and we focus so much on those sort of things, lots of times we overlook the fact that it's the people who are going to use this solution that's going to be built uh, and if, the, if 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 they don't use it well, then the success of the transformation is is going to be challenged, and that's that's mm -hmm. that that's the big thing. And we never put enough into that change management aspect to it. We never put the guiding principles in, so we actually know what direction we're heading on uh, to actually achieve our outcome. And and that's often one that we we sort of become misguided. We're putting in technology, but what are we really doing? What what are we, how are we going to operate? What are we going to do? And I think. These are some of the things that uh, help uh, bed down a good transformation is, you know, understanding it's mainly people and we need a plan. You know, you can't go out on a, uh, on a, a trip anywhere without understanding where you're heading and why, which direction you're going to take. So um, that, that's often, from too. yeah, that's right. And, and that's often missed. You know, we go technology, they will be able to give us all the answers. And that's very rarely does that ever happen. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and if I can... Go for it, Michelle. Sorry. I was just going to add that just to note that the transformation doesn't end at go live, right? So uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's absolutely. like, okay, now people are using it. Are they, you know, are we making sure that they are using it the way that's intended? Um, are they going back to old habits? How do we, you know, kind of help them assimilate this technology? So, so just to add a little bit to that is that it doesn't end at go live, it continues. Um, it actually and, begins. and with new hires and with people that get promoted and you know, it's that um, ability yeah. to but to make sure people are using it the way. But if, if, if I come back to, if I, I think it's a great point and we're probably gonna need another hour over here, Eric. <laughs> I sort of come, 
come back to, to Wayne's point because it, and the comment that was made about uh, digital versus transformation and and you know the question is so often asked these days when, when one engages with organizations on their digital transformation roadmaps or strategies what do we mean by digital and that's actually in my view anyway not the important question what do we mean by transformation is the important question to me because if we're not if we're just deploying this kind of digital dabbling if we're just employing deploying a whole lot of technologies and in the absence of some coherent transformational type program, i.e., if we're not changing the business operating model, and and you know in terms of how we how we how we create new products and services, or, or creating new channels of delivering to new customers, or collaborating with other with other value creators in the, in the broader ecosystem, if we're not doing something fundamentally different in terms of how we run our business, then it's not really transformation. You know, it's kind of optimization. We're optimizing our existing our existing business processes to perhaps drive efficiencies or operational excellence or asset utilization, whatever. So I think the the um, definition of what we mean by digital transformation, and particularly what we mean by transformation, is fundamentally important. And too many organisations purely focus on what new technologies do we need to deploy, rather than what what what, what are we trying to pursue from a business capability perspective? What are we trying to change? Are we launching new capabilities? Are we launching new products? Are we opening up new channels with our customers, et cetera, et cetera? And I think it's a fundamental failing of many projects in this day and age. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And here's another uh, sort of a failure point, and I'll have to hide this comment to read the whole thing uh, because it's a long one, but it's a good one. Um, this is from uh, Patricia over on LinkedIn. Uh, she says, I think it's important to establish a meaningful leadership when policies are well explained instead of well written. Communication and interaction should be done for all projects in a more human way, spending precious time explaining and engaging people. Bear with me here. Instead of making decisions, leaving behind people who will be done. Uh, let me just skip past part of that and say an efficient leadership is, is the key of digital transformations in terms of defining those that meaningful those meaningful policies and clearly explaining to people those policies. Um, that's another sort of foundational people component that oftentimes gets overlooked because we're, we tend to focus so much on the technology, maybe the processes a little bit too, but the people side tends to be sort of the third, the third in line, if you will, when you look at the people process technology uh, side of it. Um, what are your thoughts there? Would you add anything to that uh, uh, Clifford? Absolutely. Um, it, it is a focus on people, process, technology, and and I think the points have been made already that uh, we, we we don't kind of focus and, and, and the interdependencies I think between those three and and Michelle raised a good point around uh, deployment. And, you know, we we tend to uh, pop the champagne cork and declare victory at the point of deployment, and and everybody runs off and all the the wonderful structures and capabilities that we've built to drive continuous business process engineering to drive user adoption. And, and to do the refresher training and and fundamentally you know, change the to drive improved business performance however you may define that that kind of all dissipates that we move off onto and everybody moves off back to their day jobs or SI moves on to the next project so I think it comes back to how do we define the journey you know is this journey does this journey end at deployment or go live or or does this journey end at when we start to see some business benefit and of course we need all three of those components to work together to ensure that we deliver the right capabilities. You know, wonderful technology without trained people is, is, is just equates to inefficiencies. Um, so as an example, so um, 
Yeah, and, and, and I think the last point of this, we never seem to get this right. This is a perennial mistake that these that this projects make and for however long I've been involved, which is a, a long time. Sorry, Wayne. But, but one of the things there is the models that we actually have when we talk about SIs, SIs are geared towards getting to go live and then providing a few months of, uh, and as minimal months as they can get away with usually, of, uh, of support. And I think that as an organisation, they need to actually go, well, you're building something. Our, our actual testing is not only UAT, our testing is the functional tests of, that we would have using the system after, you know, with some time after, so that we actually get an understanding of how well our users are engaged, how well are they using the system? Is the system actually stacking up to what we had built it to be, not just you know very short-term testing that usually happens to be able to get across mm -hmm. the line. And I think the model needs to actually shift. And and, and that's a, a big big piece of advice that I would offer anybody who's looking at uh, a large transformation is you know put as much into the beginning as you have after, um, because um, I, I think you know if we just have to go live, um, you know the organisation uh, loses uh, because. It's left with something that it's untried uh, in in the real battlefield, and so uh, so it needs to be able to have that those, those you know that that real tested use of the of the users uh, using the system. Yeah, yeah, great point. What about um, I'm going to come back to this this concept that we we sort of touched on earlier a couple times, but this concept of getting that global commonality in a transformation. So let's just say we're multinational transformation. We're trying to enforce some level of commonality, common business processes, common technology, common organizational structures, operating models, all that stuff. But at the same time, we have to take into account, I think something you, you mentioned, I think it was Wayne, you have to take into account the local, the local needs. How do you find that right balance? I know that's a huge question that we could spend the entire hour on just that one question, but what are some of the you know, at, a, at the simplest level, what are some of the things that come to mind in terms of how to how to find that right balance between global commonality and localized needs and resources without getting caught up in the whole uh, the whole mindset of, oh, well, we do things differently here and it's really more of a change management issue. Therefore, I'm going to push back on the global model. How do you find yeah. that right balance? Great point. I think I think when you start looking at those those back office uh, type uh, processes, that's where you can get commonality because you know you're processing, you're invoicing, you're doing all those sort of things. But then when you start looking at, say, supply chain, uh, you you may have um, in some areas you've got very very good efficient supply chain channels and ports and and roads and those sort of things. And in other places you have you you, you very poor roads. Uh, you know the communication um, uh, functionality for for some areas is very low, and so. Uh, you can't use mobility devices, you know, and so some of those challenges are where the localization needs to be considered and and uh, made sure it is uh, is addressed. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. How about you, Clifford? What would you you add to that? Yeah, I, I think it's you know the, the 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 extent to which one can drive standardization and absolutely in in the you know why would you want to differentiate uh, in the finance? Uh, business domain when it's driven by you know globally accepted accounting practices anyway uh, it, it, that's not where you win so but but I think it's the extent to which one can drive standardization and how quickly you could drive it and get some commonalities often a factor of 
organizational culture and dynamics. You know, one has this all the time. One department saying, well, we're different, or one division, we do things differently, or the engineers saying, we're not going to adopt this system, it's a finance system. Or So I, I find there's often a lot of organizational dynamics which are quite divisive and which, and, and at the end of the day, when you get everybody in a room, they quickly find that they're really not that different. Um, and, 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 I, and I really think when you, it's, it's a very difficult thing to balance because you know, when you're burning X number of dollars a day on consultants, you cannot allow too much, especially in that, stat, that area where you want standardization, you cannot allow too much consultation and differentiation. So I, pref I prefer a tell rather than a sell approach in terms of uh, saying, guys, really, this is, this is there's only one, one way of doing this and, uh, and and we kind of, there cannot be three ways of placing an order. We have to settle on mm -hmm. what we co what constitutes best practice from our perspective and agree on it. Uh, often very difficult to achieve and very time consuming and costly for, for organizations. And one of the things that does help, sorry, Michelle, uh, okay. does help organizations is looking at it from the end to end perspective. And so, so the, the process that, that actually, you know, uh, breaches all the borders, it actually shows that, you know, this, this process does go uh, past here and it does return back. And, th and that, that can help you get that bit of commonality because people understand what they're expecting and what they're looking to receive. And so, that's an area where you can get standardization just purely by understanding there is more than uh, one stakeholder involved in any one process. Mm. Yeah, I, I was I was going to make two points. One is getting everyone in the room, right, and, and having them hear from each other and maybe even learn from each other things that, you know, uh, they didn't know. Um, and I was going to make another point, but I lost it. So I'll, I'll get back to it. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do the same thing. That's why I just have to write, I have a little notepad out. Oh, sticky yes, notes. I should have done write that. Down. Gotta <laughs> just learn from I always you. Forget. I hate when that happens. Um, <laughs> no, I'll come back to you. But I, I guess just to to summarize then, uh, well, let me maybe build on what you all just said, and then I'll, I'll ask you sort of a, a closing question here. But I think a lot of what we're talking about here, um, and one, one thing we haven't talked about, which I hope to talk about, but we could spend a whole other hour on this too, is merger and acquisition. And, and a lot of times in global multinational transformations, you're, you're operating in a merger and acquisition integration sort of environment, um, which further you know, fuels or underscores the importance of, of all this stuff we're talking about, because you have oftentimes not only disparate cultures, disparate business processes that have grown organically and internally, but now you've gone out and acquired businesses oftentimes that you're trying to merge into or integrate with the core operations. And so that just you know, further underscores all the stuff we've been talking about. But one of the other things that, that comes to mind too is all the stuff we've talked about in the last hour um, really, to me, points out or underscores the need to have that upfront, uh, you know, implementation readiness and planning and making sure that you're really ready to start the implementation. Because I think what ends up happening is all the stuff we're talking about, I think of it as like little little pieces of a foundation we're trying to put in place. And if we don't have all these pieces in place, all these challenges that we've talked about, if we haven't addressed those pieces of the foundation, what ends up happening is you throw this big technological project on top of that foundation that's shaky and the whole thing collapses. It's like a lot like a house, you know, it's just you haven't you, you don't have the structure in place. You don't have the blueprint and you're, and you're trying to throw in bits and pieces of a house and, it, and, it, and it's going to collapse if you don't have the right the right framework. So I think it really underscores the need, especially on these multinational implementations, but even for localized implementations, it's important too, but more so for multinational is to make sure you have that implementation readiness, that clear blueprint, 
and you really slow down up front. Uh, organizations don't like to hear that oftentimes. System integrators and software vendors definitely don't like to hear that because they want you to jump right in, just start doing stuff because then we can throw some bodies at this. We can throw our expensive army of consultants at the project and we're going to start generating revenue on our side. So no big deal on your side, right? And of course it is a big deal. So I think that uh, is something to keep in mind as well as, as you're thinking about how to plan for these sorts of projects. But I guess that leads me to the last question. You know, that comment leads me to the last question I have for you, which is, what, what sort of closing advice would you leave to a project team or an organization that's about to start a digital transformation? If you had to pick one or two things that are the most important thing to remember as you're getting started on a global digital transformation, what would they be? I'll start with you, Clifford. Yeah, I, I, I think, Eric, I have a pretty standard response to, to, to this one when, I, when I'm asked this question. And, and I think it's so important for organizations to understand why you're doing this. And, and what constitutes success for you? you know, uh, because as you rightly say, uh, the, the uh, different players in the industry, different vendors are, are very eager to jump in and, and, and you know, convince you of that the solutions are silver bullet and it's quick and easy and um, whatever the case may be. But I think organizations kind of uh, you know, slow down in the beginning to go quicker to, through the middle and end parts and, and understand why you're doing this and how you're going to define success. And, and, and how you would define failure as well, and you know, know, know what you need to avoid too. So, uh, and not only how you would define this success, but when you would assess success, it cannot be a week after you've deployed a, and a massive um, technology solution. That's, it's, there's going to be some disruption, you know, and I think too many organizations fall into that trap. You have to work hard at the stabilization and then move into optimization and, and and the timing thereof and how you plan that is so important. So plan out the full journey, understand what constitutes success and understand what constitutes failure as well. Yeah, makes total sense. It's good advice. How about you, Wayne? I think organizations need to consider that they are the conductor of all of this. It's not a burning platform and that, you know, there is a beat, there's a tune, there's all of those sort of things that actually go with it. It's not, it's something you don't outsource. And I think the big problem that we have is we outsource the view that, you know, um, they're going to do everything we need, but many times we don't know what we need or we can't communicate that to the to the people we engage in the project team. And I think that that's, that's the, the one thing, that readiness piece is ultra important. And it's really one of those things that understanding where you're heading, why you're heading there, what's it going to look like when you get there. And, and that's what readiness should actually uh, uh, be set the foundation for. Yeah, yeah. Makes so I sense. remembered what I was going to say, and it goes right into this question. So it was perfect. Um, what I was going to say earlier, and I, is that you, the process work needs to happen before implementation starts, so, mm. and it can be, it can be happening even as you're selecting a software. Um, so I think that selecting the team that's going to be working, uh, the internal project team, selecting that early, starting to think about how you're going to give them the time to work on this project and started way before implementation starts. Because what you should have when implementation starts is your processes the way you want them. And then the implementer is going to help you fit that into the software. If you don't have that, you're gonna be doing process work at the same time as implementation and that's just gonna delay the project. And you're gonna be paying for a lot of consultants to you know wait around or extend projects. So. Yeah, I would say work on your process work before you start the engagement with DSI. Get the right people in the room and um, 
yeah, and, and try to streamline as much as possible with obvi some obvious, um, you know, regional or, or country-based uh, requirements. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great place to leave. And I, I totally agree that process work is another piece of that foundational blueprint and um, upfront implementation uh, readiness. And, and to your point, business process work can start before you even know what the technology is. That's another so it's another one of those triggers, though, for software vendors and system integrators when, <laughs> when they hear people like us say that because we're independent, we're objective, we're unbiased, we're not trying to sell software because we don't sell software. They are trying to sell software. When we tell them that we're going to do this process work up front, that hurts them because they can't sell you the software and get started on billing as fast as if, if you hadn't. So I think that's, uh, you know, you're going to hear probably hear otherwise from uh, mm -hmm. software vendors. Um, they also will throw in that, oh, we've got best practices in our software. You don't have to worry about this, that that process stuff. We've got best practices in our software. Just use mm -hmm. that pre-configured solution. It's, uh, that's a terrible idea, uh, just it, without getting into all the details. We could spend another hour. Another hour. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Michelle, Clifford, and Wayne. That was a great conversation. Good to have you. I especially appreciate all of you joining at odd and unusual times for each of your respective time zones. I really appreciate that. There's a lot of good stuff we covered there in that conversation. In fact, uh, Kyler and I are going to build on some of those themes here in just a moment. First, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 74. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe and check us out on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and or any of the audio podcast platforms that you might be listening, whether that be Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen, check us out there. And uh, we have new episodes every Wednesday. So right before the break, Kyler, we had our panel discussion talking about multinational digital transformations. You got to listen in as well. Obviously, you, you had some comments and questions as we we're going through the conversation. But what are your some of your takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, first, I kind of want to some because I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of people understand sometimes our viewers do um, that our, our comeback and and um, and veteran viewers, but we do have an office in North America. We have an office in Europe. We have one in Cape Town, South Africa, and Queensland, Australia. We also have a strong presence in Hong Kong as well. So that's kind of where all of these teams come from. Um, Michelle, who was on uh, the live stream, is out of New York City here in the U.S., but again, she manages a lot of our Latin America biz business or um, 
or Latin American uh, business elsewhere too, if it is in language. So just a kind of a baseline for that. The reason, a little look behind the curtain, that our, our British team could not join or our UK team is because they had uh, a time conflict with our German clients. And if, if you're German out there, you know you are never late for a meeting with Germans. So that was the reason why we, we right. could not have our, our UK team on. So just a little look behind the panel. And I, I think it's also important to kind of explain why these stakeholders with all of this experience work in the third stage community. You know, we have former CIOs, uh, COOs that have really led multinational organizations such as Wayne and Clifford that have now kind of stepped out and to really help different businesses to have that executive coaching. So that's something that I think a lot of times is different between the consulting that you might see from a bigger consulting agency that has a lot of younger workforce, not that there's anything wrong with that, but just explaining the bandwidth and the massive amount of experience that these um, these different people have on this live stream. I think that kind of showcases when they are talking about things um, like SI relations, um, system integrators, or different vendor support best practices. They have lived this through not only their client work, but also their work as executives in other areas. So just a, a little note for our audience there um, as to who they are and, and what, what that looks like that's a little bit different in the third stage identity. Right. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you and kind of dig in. We talked about the challenges when it comes to specific markets in resourcing support um, when it comes to either we're looking at a system integrator, just overall local vendor support, implementation support. We kind of talked about what do you do in, in that gap of you might not be able to find some locally. And something I'm, I'm really curious on is your feedback on in today's digital age, in 2022, is it really essential that you have local support for a digital transformation or can that all be done in a virtual environment nowadays? Well, I'd say a lot of the technical work can certainly be done in a virtual environment. So if you're doing uh, con configuration of software, development, integration, architecture, things like that, that, a lot of that can be done remotely and it doesn't matter where in the world you are. I think where the challenges are and where the in-person presence is more important is on the non-technical side of things. So when you start to get into the overall program management, um, although you could argue, and I have had people argue with me or debate with me whether or not program managers should be uh, kind of remote, in-person, that sort of thing. I, I personally feel like it's very important because the relationships and the understanding the culture and you're changing the culture, all that stuff's happening and you're, you should be in the thick of that as a, as a program manager. And I, I'm not necessarily buying the, uh, the argument that's out there right now in the mainstream way of thinking that uh, you can do all that over Zoom or over Microsoft Teams. I think you can do a lot of it over Zoom. You can mm -hmm. augment a lot of what you do in person over Zoom, but um, I'm not suggesting an eight to five presence Monday through Friday or whatever, you know, Sunday through Thursday, if you're in other parts of the world. Um, but I am suggesting that there is some in-person presence is important there. I think it's especially important when you start to get into two other areas. One is organizational change management, where you're, you're sort of on the front lines of leading change and that sort of thing. That's just really hard to do and highly ineffective to do hundred percent remotely. Um, as is the case with business process reengineering and redefinition. You can do 
And we've proven during the pandemic, just as consultants, we can do a lot of that stuff remotely. But let's face it, it's just not as effective as if you're in a in a big conference room with a whiteboard, with a group of people, you're walking the shop floor, you're out walking in the warehouse to see how stuff works. You can sort of replicate some of that. You can augment some of that with uh, digital technologies and other ways of communicating, but that in-person presence is really important. So from when you're looking at system integrators, um, you certainly do want people that understand your culture and language at the local level, but that doesn't necessarily mean those technical system integrators need to be physically there in your city, in your office or whatever. But when you get into program management, change management, process reengineering, some of the non-technology stuff, and what I would argue as more important than what system integrators do, then that stuff is where that in-person presence is, is a lot more important. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. And I want to take that question two different ways. Um, so the first way, I want to talk about how you address those language barriers or those cultural nuances. Say you are a program manager, like we do here in uh, at Third Stage. We send the specialist into the marketplace. It may not be the same nationality as the headquarters of the business because we look at what do they need from a support perspective. So what do you do in um, in situations where you might have a support team, a project manager, um, those types of, of different people looking at the more granular manufacturing floor, um, you know, point of sales team, customer service team that are not speaking the same language, that may say things differently. What do you do as a, an executive of a project team to address those or to make sure that you're garnering the most quality data possible in a language barrier situation? Well, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, you'd have a bilingual team member or a series of, of bi or trilingual team members that can help with that translation. Um, I know Michelle didn't talk about it in the interview today, but with some of our Latin American clients, even though she's fluent in Spanish, she'll, she has a, a, a Spanish speaking translator that will be on teams with her mm -hmm. oftentimes because they can help, uh, help her create deliverables and help her communicate, you know, in the local language. Um, so having the, the bilingual speaking resources is really important, even if, you, you know, even if it's not all of them, it's not realistic to think that everyone on your team is going to be multilingual. Um, but you do need some people that can help with that, especially when you start working your way down the organization to more of the front mm -hmm. lines and presumably less educated uh, people, younger people that may not speak a common language other than their 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 home language, their native language. Um, so so I, I think, uh, you know, that's something that's very real that, that needs to be addressed. But that's typically how we do it is sort of a hybrid uh, multilingual approach. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's pretty interesting within those translator based scenarios of how how streamlined that is. I know when I've, you know, looked at those or observed those different workshops, it's pretty incredible the amount that I understand as an English speaking person and the way that they they are able to do that. And I was really bummed that you didn't ask the audience to ask Michelle questions in Spanish because that's my favorite part because then oh, we yeah. have no idea what they're saying and we don't right. have the filter ability to get, they could be saying, Hey, Eric, I hate you. And we have no idea. She right. have <laughs> and you would get them bantering and laughing in a exactly. language that neither yeah. you or I speak, but yeah, <laughs> funny for them, not so much. Behind their backs. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, I think that's a, a real, um, 
real barrier sometimes to being in those multi-national. And that's why we take that hybrid team or that diversification team approach like you just talked about. We may have a specialist on site that works with D3. 65 that has that, you know, background, Michelle on site, that's going to help us kind of have that language conversation. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about kind of the, the B uh, lens to that question is I, Clifford had said something, which I always like to pull from his, his um, dynamic is that unhealthy dependence on your, your system at integrator or i felt like it it was almost a blog title we need to do like an intervention right you're right. you're obsessed with your system integrator or something like that so what are some signs that you have an unhealthy relationship with your system integrator oh it's a great question i, I love this question I, I get excited uh talking about this stuff because there's so many of them yeah. um, <laughs> i've actually been doing a lot of uh it's funny you ask this because lately I've been doing a series of TikTok videos on my TikTok channel mm. about this exact topic and it's a great it's a great controversial topic because you get people that have experienced this from the client side mm. that will respond to these these videos I put out there on TikTok but then you also get people that are actually working for some of these large system integrators that comment as well and what's really interesting is most people even the ones that work for the for the consulting firms for the big consulting firms agree with me Mm -hmm. And which I find fascinating. So you've got all these people that are actually part of the machine that are oh yeah, part of the problem, but that's their job is to be part of the problem. They aren't hired for that reason. They, they don't yeah. necessarily go in with that intent, but that is um, part of the problem in the industry. But to answer your question, um, some of the things that, um, that you look for uh, that I would watch for it or view as really big red flags would be things like, um, you know, first of all, lack of understanding of why the system integrator is proposing the types of people that they are and the number of people that they are. So for example, if they tell you, you've got a global multinational project and we need to put 50 people on this project. If you don't have any understanding of what each of those 50 people are doing and why they are there, that's a problem. But the problem is so many organizations have blind trust in the big system integrators because mm -hmm. it's Accenture, it's Deloitte, it's KPMG, whoever it is. And they just take it at face value and I used to, you know, I think we talked on this podcast before. I used to be part of the problem. I used to work on the other side at Pricewaterhouse. And I can tell you for a fact, their sole interest is getting as many people as possible billable and utilized on your project and other clients' projects. So you have to push back. If you're not pushing back and saying, why do we have 50 people on this project? Can we do it with 40? Then in having those dialogues and those conversations, then you're getting, you're overpaying and chances are your project's going to go severely over budget because now you've got too many people on the project, which isn't going to make the project go any faster, by the way, it's just going to cost you more, a higher monthly run rate. And now when the project gets delayed and it takes 18 months instead of 12 months or 24 instead of 18, that's, that's where the overrun happens is because you've overstaffed. You've, you might've tried it, you know, the system integrators try to compress the timeline because that's more of an excuse to throw as many resources and bodies out of the project as possible. And then when that extends out, they make more money. So total conflict of interest there. You have to recognize that and make sure that you're, you're pushing back on that. So that's one sign. If you don't know what each of the people are doing and why they're there, that's a problem. Um, if you don't have any comparable, anyone on your team with comparable knowledge of the technology that you're deploying and the transformation type of project itself, that's a problem. So in other words, if you just have never done this sort of project before, neither has anyone on your team, but the system integrator is now coming in as sort of the, the savior for you because now they have done it. That's super unhealthy. And on one hand, yes, you're high, you have to hire outside, outside help, obviously. 
Yeah. You're not, this isn't your job day to day to go through digital transformation. So you need the system integrators, you need the technical implementers or whoever you bring in, but you also need to build that internal competency or else things are going to turn into a mess. It's not going to be your project. It's, it's going to be the system integrators project. So you need to counteract that outside support and the cost of that outside support and that unhealthy dependency of that outside support. You need to counterbalance that with your own internal resources that you develop. You might have to go hire some people, but the whole idea here is to not replicate what the system integrators are doing, but build some core basic level of competency in-house that'll allow you to not be so dependent on the system integrators. And perhaps even more importantly, make sure that when the system integrator goes away, you're not completely dysfunctional because now the system integrator is gone. And by the way, they benefit if that does happen. If that if you become so dependent on them long-term that they can't go away, that's good for them. That that helps them. So you, you have to recognize they're not looking out for your best interests on that front. So you you have to do that. And that's where you know, oftentimes we'll come in and, and help clients build that internal competency. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think we talked about it in the, yeah. the interview with the panel is you, sometimes you need to push off the implementation and say, we're not quite ready yet. We know what direction we're going, but let's get our ducks in a row. Let's get our staff in place. Let's build the competencies. Let's start to lay out our business processes. Let's get our change strategy in place. Then we'll start implementing. Um, so that's, those are just a couple of the big things that come to mind though, as far as red flags to watch for. Yeah. And I think that's nice why it's, it's, you have that independent third party as you can have that watchdog. It's you don't know what you don't know. And that's not a shame point, right? It just means that you haven't done the project before. I haven't right. done many things before. It's totally normal. Um, but to have that, uh, that advocate in that conversation of saying like, we don't need 40 people or you need to learn how to do so and so in house, or you're, you might as well go throw money off the roof because you're going to be paying a bunch of people. You don't know why to do the same job that you could do internally. So I think that's one of the biggest pieces that we play. I yes. will just say, if you are in the TikTok community, if you um, go in, and look up some of those role plays with De Deloitte executives and you need a laugh, absolutely hilarious because they, they hire this young workforce, these content creators, these digital natives, that um, can totally see through um, the facade of the executive that wears tennis shoes, that buys you pizza, that comes in and, and you know fist bumps you, doesn't know your name in any way, doesn't know what you do, but still wants to be relevant and cool. Hilarious. So just if you need a, a laugh, go ahead and check that out. Who's posting those? That's not obviously that's not coming no. from Deloitte and those guys, no, right? It's, it, it, it's um, it's I like it's content creators that used to work. That was their first job. Very normal. They were recruited off of campus. You know, they got put on a bunch of projects, had no idea what they were doing. Right. But um, they kind of got out of that big machine and now they make fun of it, to be totally honest. And it's oh, it's nice. it's completely true what they're saying in that in that role play. So it's it's just an interesting way to see that this younger workforce can absolutely see through that facade of kind of the drinking the Kool-Aid approach. So, you know, we'll see how that goes for them. <laughs> yeah, that's, but, that's super interesting. One, one other thing I was going to say too, that you can do is to build on your last point about um, building the internal competency and how, mm -hmm. you know, it's okay to admit you don't know what you don't know. The other thing you can do is if, let's just say the system integrator says you need 50 people on the project. And let's just say that's true. I doubt it is, but let's just say it's true. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, well, let's pick off a few of these roles. And actually, we're going to hire that ourselves as, as an independent contractor or as an employee. It could be either one, an employee or a contractor that you manage yourself rather than putting all your eggs in one basket with the system integrator. Because they come in with these alleged turnkey solutions, right, where you're basically outsourcing your project. 
And that's what they want. You know, they want all 50 people to be from them. And by the way, a lot of those 50 people are going to be super junior. They're going to be learning on the job. I was one of those people. That's how I got started in consulting. So it's hard for me to knock because it benefited me early in my career. It's, it's great. You know, if you're a consultant, but if you're a client, that's, that's uh, highly suspicious in my, in my opinion. Um, So I think you've got to watch for that too. And and just look for creative staffing models. It's your project. If you want to bring in if you want half the resources to be, you know, direct resources that you manage, and then you you just limit the system integrator to certain select areas that you really need the help, do it. I mean, they they're not going to like it. They they don't want you to do that. The system integrators, but you, that's your your prerogative. It's your project. So I think that's the biggest takeaway I have for managing system integrators is just to remember that it's your project and do what you want. Do what you need to do to manage your business. Well, I know you had mentioned you have a ton of tips on your or your TikTok page, which you also put a lot of time on your YouTube page. Um, so if you want to engage in that conversation, go. Obviously, Eric gets excited about this subject. We're all very nerdy here. We get very excited about digital transformation. So if you do leave a comment, a lot of times he'll address it in the video or we'll address it in our brand video. So definitely make sure to follow us on those channels. If you do want to connect with Clifford, Wayne, and Michelle, um, you can connect with them on LinkedIn. You can also visit our website and then our Meet the Team playlist on um, Third Stage YouTube channel. They're all on there too. So you can learn more about their background. Um, and I know they'd love to hear from you and um, get some more questions from that amazing conversation. It was it was very, very telling. I think we could have spent at least an hour on a variety of different of of different topics you guys touched on. Yeah, yeah, easily. And I think we say that every week. We say, you know, um, if, we, if only we had another hour. And people always ask too, you know, how can you make a two hour podcast or a two and a half hour podcast every week? I'm like, I could, I could easily make this five hours. I mean, this would be no problem for us to fill five hours every week and still not get through everything we need to, but, mm-hmm. um, but we won't, we won't do that today. We'll keep it to two hours ish, uh, for today's conversation. Um, and what we'll do is we'll shift gears and actually we're going to talk to one of our clients. I have one of our clients on the show. It's actually a clip of an interview that uh, Kyler recently conducted with this client. And the client company name is called Dexter Russell. They're a mid-sized manufacturing organization uh, that we recently helped select software for, as well as help them implement uh, the technology. And so we're going to talk about uh, basically a digital transformation case study in manufacturing. We're going to get some more client perspectives on lessons learned, best practices, recommendations, things they uh, they would suggest to someone starting a new transformation. So we're going to have uh, Dexter Russell on the show after a quick break. But first, we'll take that break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, 
um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday, so thanks for listening here today. Uh, we are excited for our next guest. It's a first-time guest. Uh, it's actually a client of Third Stages. Uh, this is uh, Jeff Rice, who is with a company called Dexter Russell, uh, who is a client of Third Stages and one that we recently helped through the selection process as well as the uh, implementation and the overall transformation. So we thought it'd be great to have Jeff on the show to talk about his perspective uh, from how the transformation went and take some of the lessons away uh, from more of a client perspective. It's one thing to talk about it as consultants like we often do on the show, but having our clients talk about it, sometimes they have a, a very different perspective. So we thought it'd be great to have him on the show. So uh, with that being said, we'll cut to the clip of uh, this interview that you conducted uh, with Jeff Kyler. So let's cut to the interview here. So Jeff, if you could just tell me a little bit about Dexter Russell uh, and why you were looking at some new technology. Oh, all right. Well, that's a little ahead of my time, to be honest, but I'll tell you what I know. So Dexter Russell is the leading manufacturer in the U.S. of uh, high-end cutlery knives and accessories. Uh, and they've been in business for 200 plus years making products here in the United States. Um, we uh, reside in a large factory here in Southbridge, Massachusetts, three floors of good old made in the USA manufacturing facility of a brick building of uh, several, somewhere in the range of probably 100,000 square feet. Um, the president of the company wants to bring the company to the next level so that he can hand it off. It's a family run business and he would like to then hand off a company that's in great shape for the next generation. Um, and so I think that's what prompted the idea of putting it in a uh, ERP system in general. Uh, that decision was made before I got here. Uh, so the decision was already made and actually um, the decision was made to put in an ERP system which ERP system wasn't decided, and I got here in Jan uh, January of 2021, mm. and they voted on it, I think, as early as like February or March. And so I abstained from the vote, not having the opportunity to look right. at the players and the choices, um, but then, of course, leaned very heavily on the input from the folks at third stage that, uh, you know, suggested here's the, here's the choices and this is why we should go down these paths. Excellent. Well, before we get too much into the project overview, um, let's talk a little bit more about Dexter Russell. How big is Dexter Russell, and do you have just that one location? Okay, so big and just let's give it to you in terms of. Uh, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell you dollars. I don't really know how that works here. That's fine. But yeah, just um, size is good. About yeah, we're about 250 people, and yes, we have two locations, both here in the uh right in this area one is in southbridge and the other is in sturbridge um and a primary um 
One is a, a uh, the, the one in servers is a warehouse structure, um, right? Where that's where we send all our finished goods and service our customers from there. So we provide the Amazon-like look to our distributors from that facility. And then the one in Southbridge is primarily a manufacturing plant um, where we make uh, and stamp the knives and grind the knives and build the knives. Yeah. Absolutely. And where are you from? You don't sound like anyone from from Southbridge that I've ever met before. Uh, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> Usually we get the, the bigger accent. <laughs> oh, OK, so I am I'm from I'm from Massachusetts. OK, there you I go. I used to say park the car a lot. Okay. But then what happened was I went off to college. OK. And, and in college, I went to the University of Hartford. And OK. Hartford. I never used to say Hartford. I would always say Hartford. Yeah. But once you go to school and people make fun of you for four years, you kind of start to just change your dialect a little bit. So, yes, I still am from Massachusetts. I went to school in Connecticut. And as a result, nobody can really figure out my accent. So that's, well, that's good. Yeah, I that's good. Close to Bo I actually grew up pretty close to Boston, probably only eight, six or eight miles outside of Boston. Oh, very cool. Excellent. So we considered ourselves city dwellers back there when we said talk the car, but we don't say yeah. that anymore. <laughs> well, that's excellent. Um, beautiful area, definitely. Lots of history, and I'm sure it's it's an interesting place to work. Absolutely. Uh, so when you were looking at a new system, and I know this kind of predates your time, can you just talk about kind of who the decision maker was in that process or maybe a, a core team setup? Uh, so there was a group of core team as they defined it and I think uh, it consisted of the core team seven in addition to that though we also had like the corporate sponsor being the CEO or president of the company and we also had uh, CFO as part of that group and so that was kind of the primary folks I think that were involved initially and let me just make sure I haven't forgotten anybody so we list the steering committee was one, two, three, four, five folks. So that was kind of the top management folks. From there, we had the business sponsor, which was the CFO, which is interesting because he's also the steering committee. So he's the steering committee and the CFO or the business sponsor. Then uh, the program manager we had was third stage. The project manager was myself. And then we get down into the core team. If I'm not mistaken, um, and that's where I said I abstained from the vote, um, I believe that everybody on this, that group that I just listed, mm -hmm. all voted except for me. Okay. So that seven or eight folks kind of, they went through a process of evaluation. They got to see kind of the final package and then voted. Um, and I'm not sure how that all played out. But yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So as you went through the software selection process, what were some of the main requirements that you needed for your business? Just knowing, obviously, you're very manufacturing heavy. Yeah, I think that was the big thing. I think that's probably how we ended up down the path we ended up, right? We are primarily a manufacturing company that had no MRP system. So we had a system, but we weren't using it for MRP. Uh, mm -hmm. We're kind of maybe using it a little bit for inventory management and a little bit for writing work orders and things like that. But there was little to no MRP going on in the company. I would say that was a big driver in terms of making things uh, what the what the company was looking for. 
I think, though, the other piece for sure was, was a good understanding of end-to-end, mm-hmm. which also wasn't happening, right? So the system we were using didn't necessarily tie a, a sales order to a job on the floor to then the invoice very well and things like that. So those are probably the two main things that I re- can remember that would be uh, primary drivers. And you, I assume, um, building on that, you chose an ERP system as opposed to um, an MRP just for that end-to-end visibility. That's my take, but that yeah. was for me. Yeah. I would and have personally probably just focused on MRP first. <laughs> Based on everything we have found out so far. I thought I had something here, though, that Thursday's put together that showed our primary criteria. That's what I was looking for, though. At any rate, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, we'll get into that later, I'm sure, when you ask me more questions about how it went. Because I think that we were a bit off more than we can chew. Yeah, definitely. And that's a, a pretty typical experience sometimes with, with ERP, especially in you know smaller organizations um, as well. So when it comes to the actual selection process, Typically, we go through requirements, right? We have the the demos and workshops. Were you involved in any of those more granular pieces? No. 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 I came in at about the 11th hour, right, as we were doing the voting. So the sales cycle, the, hey, what tools do we need? What's our need? What's our functions? What's, you know, what's the expectation of the tool? Yeah, that had already kind of passed. I gotcha. Was, I, I was the guy that was told to get it done. Well, good. Wow, that's a that's a big job. Good. Well, good, good for you. Um, yes. So we ended up going with Epicor. Correct. And uh, when you engaged third stage, can you talk a little bit about the support that you received from the third stage side? Who did you work with and what did that team structure look like? Yeah, so actually third stage was engaged before I got here mm-hmm. also. And um, uh what well, i guess going back to one of these charts right where it talks about that um we have the steering committee we have the business sponsor we've got a program manager we've got a project manager and then in this whole thing you kind of put the third party vendors in there thus third stage i don't know how to say it but uh if third stage hasn't hadn't been here this wouldn't have happened it's probably two key things that I point to in terms of the success or my success or whatever. I don't like to boast. That's not about me. Um, but I had never done the ERP implementation. I'm a manufacturing guy, not an IT Epicor MRP guy. And so at any rate, um, my boss thought it would be good for me to do it. And I said, good grief. You sure? Um, so we ended up with uh, third stage. And and my point about that was, I think the whole project management part of it all, and because they had enough background and understanding of how to do this, uh, I think that was instrumental for somebody like myself, who understood the manufacturing side, understood the players and how to bring it together. But kind of the, I don't know, the professional coaching and advice that was coming from the uh, third stage team was, yeah, unparalleled. And uh, absolutely necessary for the success of uh, what we were doing. So Amanda would be your project manager, right? Um, And then when it comes to the project director, I think that was Adam, right? Correct. Okay. 
And then was there anyone else that you engaged with from the third stage side um, that helped with this transition? No. No. Well, not that I recall. And to be honest with you, Adam, while a bright man and came in at the right points, you know, the heavy lifting was certainly done by Amanda for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Look at roles and responsibilities. I just found this chart and it says their roles and responsibilities are provide program review and guidance, provide independent project QA, input to risk management plan. Those seem like good things, but I guess I found a lot more than that out of the uh, out of the relationship with third stage personally. So. Excellent. Well, good. Um, so when it comes to where you are now um, with your Epicor implementation, have you begun the implementation point yet or are you still um, planning that? So we officially went live on February 7th. Oh, great. 2022, yes. And um, we, uh, so a couple of glitches along the way that I think people should be aware of, which I try to make my boss aware of on a regular basis. Uh, Epicor's model is uh, two things that I find very wrong with their model. One is they believe it's all about training the trainer and they don't really have a system set up if you don't have the ability to train the trainer. And so Dexter Russell with a number of people in a core team of seven, that was about it. They kept their full-time jobs. We didn't bring in on any extra resources. So I quickly kiboshed the idea of train the trainer is going to work here. Unfortunately, at the 11th hour, Epicor came through with some training for the for the working level folks. But now I can't remember. I get off subject. I'm pretty sure. What the heck was the question? So oh, we were, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now then, I think we're um, uh, 60 working days in. Uh, and one of the one of the strong learnings is, yeah, we didn't realize how bad the data was. Okay or how many people had their hands in the information. And when we mm -hmm. start putting in a system and then kind of slowly closing things down and say, well, only these people can change this and these people can change that. Yeah, that quickly brought the, uh, what's the right word? The culture to a shock, right? Because mm -hmm. everybody basically could do everything in the past. And I'm like, yeah, you can't keep running it that way. That's why we have so many errors. 60 days in, we're still fixing bill of materials, we're still fixing inventory, we're still fixing travelers, we're still fixing sales orders, we're still fixing methods, and we're still fixing who has what responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Now, I was told by third stage that that's fairly normal, that six months is basically kind of a reasonable time frame. I told my boss I needed approximately yeah, 180 days in order to then figure out where we're at to stabilize the system. Mm -hmm. Challenge of that, of course, is you're right. I'm running around trying to make sure we're still correct and build materials, and the boss wants to know how come his dashboard isn't all built yet. So that's a bit <laughs> of a challenge in that people don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest challenge, though, in terms of where we're at, there is, I'm not a, on my staff, which is all of the operations, mm -hmm. all the manufacturing, all the buying, all the planning, all that kind of stuff. I don't think I have a single member that knows what MRP is and how it works. Mm. Okay. So putting in a new system is a great idea, but people don't have the basics in terms of understanding what should the system be able to do for us. Uh -huh. We're constantly having conversations about comments get made, and I just sit there. I'll give you the comment from the other day. My boss says to me, yeah, Jeff, so, um, you know, the sales guys just came to me, and they found out that, you know, when we put in the demand, um, you know, and then and then de delete the order, the demand stays there. 
And of course, the look on my face was kind of like, oh, she had a mask, because that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard from an MRP system, right? Or an MRP's perspective, right? So again, that's the kind of high level comment, and you definitely can't put that in any transcript. But my point is, that's kind of the high level challenge that I think we're up against is for people to make that statement, to me says they have no idea what MRP is supposed to do for us. So, okay, yeah, sort of true, but not really true. And yes, there was a specific item and a specific part and a specific thing and a specific BPM that caused that to occur. Not that demand goes away and the demand doesn't really go away. It's not like hmm. a lot of head scratching going on in my world in terms of just like, well, it shouldn't really work that way, but I don't know the answer. So I, I guess I find myself saying that a lot. I think, um, August. I think the date that I put on the board was August 8th. I have that on the whiteboard and we kind of meet on a regular basis with the production folks and others in order to kind of gauge where we're at. And I wrote August 8th because I think that was the 180 days out or whatever it was. Very good. Um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced we'll be where we want to be at 180 days. Uh, but we'll certainly be a heck of a lot better than where we are today. Um, I will say, though, in terms of the go live and the support then back to third stage. In Epicor, the go live, in my opinion, went very well. Right. The whole mapping over and getting things to work and more sure enough. So I think in terms of the schedule, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is what they recommend you plan for. And so we actually shut down. We worked on Thursday, but we started doing some stuff. Then we shut down the facility on Friday. And by Saturday afternoon, we were shipping product. Wow, so, that's great. Right? So that's the good news. All of the stuff in behind that from an MRP yeah. perspective and everything else, yeah, we got a lot of things that we had to fix. And that was probably the first month or two. So where are we at? Let's see. So February, March, April. Yeah, month or two. And... Yeah. uh yeah, today I think we know what the problems are, and now it's just a matter of getting through them all. Absolutely. So if you were to, and maybe you did at the start of your project strategy, set some KPIs that you wanted to achieve with this new system, have you achieved those and can you share what they are? Obviously not revenue-based, but maybe something like process efficiencies, um, you know, user license you know those types of things where you said kind of the business processes was something that needed to be looked at uh was there anything like that that you've seen come through uh i, I don't think we're there yet to be honest with mm -hmm. you Tyler. i think um as a matter of fact my boss tried to outline my objectives for the year i said i'm hoping to have a baseline by then yeah an appreciation for what are our costs what are our inventory levels what's our intervals um, mm -hmm. those kind of things uh, are still not there. Um, I think, though, to your other question, certainly our intent is also is to turn off other systems, mm -hmm. right? Epicor does kind of have the whole thing end to end. There was a couple instances where we didn't implement uh, maintenance. We weren't ready. Uh, a bartender they do for the label program. We weren't ready. We have thousands of labels and we use the different software. And so to try to get it all converted on time wasn't going to happen. So in my mind, those are big projects just to get those kind of fed into the big system. Uh, were there any other 
No. I think at the end of the day, the major task that I was given was on day one, we need to be able to take an order, make an order, ship an order, and get paid for the order. Mm-hmm. We are doing that. We Great. probably do somewhere in the vicinity of a couple hundred orders per day that we both take in and ship out. Mm-hmm. We ship from a, we're a build to stock type of company. And so we are building to stock. Um, and, and, you know, filling the coffers back up and trying to meet the customer's demand. And when you say the basics have been kind of a struggle or a pain point um, with looking at an MRP or an ERP um, type of system, a two-part question, how do you establish that within your workforce? And would it be something that you recommended to other um, you know, manufacturing folks that are going through any sort of ERP selection to establish before implementation? I'm not sure I understood your question. It's, uh, that's a lot of questions for a guy like me. It's a, <laughs> it's a two-beer question. As I... I'm going to write down a whole bunch of notes. Well, say that again. You want to know so, what would I recommend, you mean, for somebody who's going to try to implement a tool? Okay, we're listening in with Kyler discussing with Jeff at Dexter Russell talking about his digital transformation. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue that conversation when we come back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 74. We're here with Kyler interviewing or discussing with Jeff from Dexter Russell about his digital transformation. Let's cut back to the conversation. You had mentioned that a pain point of your project was just the workforce understanding the basics, right? The basics of working with a system. And I wondered, um, because that's kind of a unique piece that I've never heard on one of these before. So I'm curious as to how you establish that. And if like, you know, hindsight is always 2020, right? Um, Would that would that be something that you would recommend that others within the manufacturing space work to establish before implementing a new technology? Absolutely. That's a great question. I like that one a lot. Um, Yes. So simply put, we weren't going from MRP to Epicor MRP. We were going from nothing to Epicor. And we had a couple of folks here at the time, and I still, I still, you know, stab myself in the eye with a pen every day just to make sure I'm. Um, the the guy that was in charge of the supply chain, he pushed that we should do advanced planning, which was one of the modules. Mm. And I kept thinking to myself, mm, I don't know, the guy we have is not really a planner, and we've done none, so that's like a big leap. Mm-hmm. Well. 
back to I told you so or I was correct about it, we're we're in a world of hurt in that regard. Mm-hmm. So my, my advice would be this. If you're going to migrate from an MRP system to Epicor, you probably already understand how MRP works. If you're not, then I, you'll do, you, I would recommend what I'm currently doing, which is get MRP training for the key people on the team. Basic MRP. I don't think they don't have to be CPIM certified necessarily, whatever, but you got to get some basic understanding of what MRP is, how it works, and what the intent is before you implement a system. That would be my advice. Absolutely. I think that's that's great advice. Um, and something else I wanted to unpack that you mentioned was just the culture shock of this new system. You mentioned, you know, uh, user siloing, those types of things to make sure that those processes are protected and the data isn't compromised. Can you talk a little bit about how as a business culture or as an organization, that new technology affected your just overall community? Absolutely. Absolutely, because we made some key changes or some key decisions or business strategy moves as part of the decision when we went to uh, and for, I'll give you a for example, um, manufacturing uh, travelers or routers or whatever people call them, pro cards, they call them here, right? That's the method by which you decide to build the product. That was adjusted and tweaked by anybody who felt it was necessary to adjust and tweak it. And it may or may not have ever made it back to the system to change it. So we had on day one travelers that weren't correct and the only person that knew was the person that did the job Hmm. um that change then became um my opinion or my vote or whatever the right word is to funnel all changes through one person in this case we picked the engineering manager Hmm. said no changes to processes occur without this guy's making the change Hmm. culturally yeah that sent shockwaves through the company right who are these people to tell us how to make these parts and blah 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 i'm like I'm not saying we know how to make the part. I'm saying somewhere you got to have control. Mm -hmm. Similarly, on bill of materials, almost the same amount of, um, let's use the word, looseness or non-appreciation for what it means to have a bill of material and to work from it. Uh, We were, whatever, eight days in, and I don't know, somebody came down and said, you know, they brought us a traveler with the bill of material and said, yeah, well, this bill of material is wrong. We're like, oh, okay. So, oh, yeah, we haven't used that rivet in like four years. Oh, wow. So, of course, you punch in where are used and you find out that rivet's on like nine different parts. So the fact that we haven't used it in that amount of time is kind of odd and the bill of material still calls for it. So to me, that's the kind of culture that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. People were used to whatever. Sally came down and said, I need more rivets. So we ordered more rivets and they bought always way more enough or plenty or more than they needed. So that you don't have to worry about Sally coming back and asking for rivets anytime soon. Mm-hmm. That was kind of more of how things ran. Right. So kind of more reactive than proactive, it sounds oh, like. Oh, 100%. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the system that we have, which is the old AS400, I think they called it, which I think then became part of Infor or whatever. I think it's an old IBM tool. Right. The demand isn't created until the order goes in. And so you're right, you have no forecast, you have no information mm-hmm. about what's going to happen and that type of stuff. And so as a result, yes, the whole business was reactive. 
And mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, even in terms, we just talked about that today, this morning, the fact that um, you know they basically took last year's sales history and said, that's going to be this year's sales. And that's how they kind of managed the system. And orders were put on the floor for manufacturing with no regard for capacity or availability material. So thousands of jobs on the floor that didn't have the parts to build. Wow, well, that is definitely um, <laughs> a challenge. So when it when it comes to kind of the human component of that side, specifically since you do you know have a, a large workforce that's in the manufacturing space, was there any um, pain points around kind of resisting the new technology? And if so, how did you address those? Uh, I'm going to use my boss's quote here where he refers to some kind of graph, right? Which is you got the early adopters on one side and they're never going to do it. And you're right. We tried to kind of focus on let's get most of the people towards the middle and uh, understand and appreciate. So we did a couple things. Uh, actually, my boss, right, the CEO, uh, he went out and did a little bit of a roadshow kind of telling people that this was going to be a significant change and that, you know, kind of gave people the heads up so I didn't have to do all that heavy lifting because it was interesting in terms of I basically personally been blamed, right? It's my fault that this oh, thing's yeah. all screwed up because I came in at the time that it was coming in. And so you're right. It's kind of like Jeff put an Epicor and screwed up the whole company. That's today's perception. Hopefully in another year or so, they won't think that so much, but we'll see. But my point was that so some of that I kind of pushed him and said, listen, we need to go out and start talking at a much broader group. Mm -hmm. But we did, the, you know, the fairly typical approach, which was initially it was the, you know, the core team and then the core team kind of down to their managers and made sure those guys understood what was going on. Um, and then kind of down to supervisors and um, not really a lot all the way down to the individual people. And I don't mean to sound um, unappreciative because the laborers are the key to what keeps things running, but the change for the labor was fairly minimal, mm -hmm. right? They, we'd already been logging into some other system called, uh, not Infor, I think it's called ShopView. We were already mm -hmm. logging into that system. So an operator was like, okay, I'm working on this step, this job, blah, blah, blah. And so they were kind of used to that. I don't think they're the ones that the resistance is coming from. Most of the resistance is coming from the supervisors up. Mm -hmm. And we still have that today. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's pretty typical. You know, that that journey sounds pretty typical, specifically within the manufacturing space. Um, so we kind of talked. By the way, though, it's also on like order entry, customer service. The tool's a little different. It works a little stranger. I think the only one that's like this tool's way better is on the shipping side. That guy is like, this is way better for me to do my job. We have a couple of glitches on how it's tied into the sh uh, the the freighting part of it all. That's a little very mm -hmm. I should say a little. I would say the freighting bolt-on piece that Epicor adopted is kludgy at best. I'm hoping right as others get on board, it gets better and things. Will, yeah. I assume things will improve, but yes, it was a kludgy, and I think still to this day we have challenges with the. Uh, not so much shipping, but then after that, labels, freighting, those kind of steps are still a bit of a challenge for us, too. Interesting. Well, that that definitely, um, that's such a great overview. And I appreciate, you know, you letting us into kind of your world when it comes to what that looks like. 
So if, if you were going to do something differently or give one piece of advice, which is kind of unique for your situation, right? Because you came in right as everything was happening. Um, but what would be one thing that you would either do differently or give a main piece of advice to someone else who might be going through a digital transformation such as this? Can I have more than one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, I think I got like seven, but I'm going to get I'm going to narrow it down to three. Uh, the first big mistake that uh, we made uh, was not to do a manual inventory. Mm -hmm. uh, it was advised by um, I don't know if it was advised by third stage. It was definitely advised by Epicor that we should uh, you know do a manual inventory and get you, and get your get your numbers lined up and uh, whatever. The perception here by the CFO and others was, yeah, we don't really know how to do manual inventories. We always screw them up, blah, blah, blah. Big mistake. I'm, I'm still fixing. Even today, somebody made a comment in the meeting. Oh, yeah, the inventory was off. Uh, so, so that would be num number one. Number two, we paid a fair amount to get the EDI piece in place. So my advice is if you're a small company like us and you don't really have somebody that's doing EDI, you got somebody in the middle that you're going to need to spend a lot of money or invest in the resources to get the EDI piece. Okay. That was huge underestimation on our part. By the time we were done, it probably cost us over $100,000 to get the EDI track to work with our customers. Wow. So that's number two. And then the third one is, and I know Epicor is really good at pushing this. I guess I didn't have a strong enough appreciation for it. Do the parts. Everything else can wait, do the parts. If your parts are loaded, then when you do all these, uh, you know, testing and unit testing and stuff, if the parts are right, most of the other stuff will work. We, unfortunately, because we were making a massive change, which was one of my suggestions on how we do the parts, we were only moving forward with a small percentage. So we had, whatever, 30 parts in our pilot. And... Um, so, be, so because of that, we didn't find a lot of other things that were or weren't working well uh, until it was, a, you know, till much later in the in the process when I would have liked to know that a lot earlier. So, yeah, they that is their advice. I kind of took it as well. We got 40 in and should be able to test a bunch of things, which is true. But we have uh, oh somewhere around 2,600 end items, so 40 is not enough is the coin. Uh, so yeah, I would say uh, a significant percentage of your parts should be loaded as fast as possible. That would be my third piece. So EDI, uh, parts, what the heck was the first one? Just, thank God you recorded it. I can't even remember now. The first one, well, we did EDI, we did, um, we did, oh, what were we? Inventory. Yeah, inventory. I was like data, inventory, something right. <laughs> around yeah. that. Absolutely. And, look, and again, I think it depends on the size of the company. Uh, yeah. I was talking to a guy uh, up in Haverhill that was, he's talking about implementing Epicor. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has uh, 46 employees. And I thought to myself, jeepers creepers. I just tried to do it for, you know, 250. And I was like, yeah. how the heck do you do it with 45 people? Number yeah. Number two was, though, I said to him, oh, really? So how long have you been working on that? Or what's your implementation time period? And he said, well, we've been out in a couple of years. Well, so we kind of did it in like 
somewhere between nine and 11 months, depends when you mm -hmm. out the official start date. Um, I was very focused on hitting the end date. And um, I remember the quote from the, uh, one of the um, consultants. And this was like early November. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had moved our date by one month already. And that was more about the fact that it was end of year. And that meant we would have all had to work through the holiday. And I told my boss, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. But um, what the consultant said to me was this. In November, he said to me, you could go live tomorrow, Jeff. You guys are in that good of shape, which gave us a fair amount of confidence. He said, um, but, you know, it'd be a lot of work, right? Yeah. So, so I was then kind of focused in on, okay, there's no need to push out the go live date. Uh -huh. So I think that would be my third piece of advice, which is, you know, some people are ready, aim, shoot, and some people are aim, 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 shoot. Yeah. And you're right. I didn't see any real advantage to spend way more time getting all my data right because jump in the pool and then you'll figure out how to swim. So I think that was also part of it. And do you feel like that approach is what you would do again? Uh, yes. yes, I would definitely, I would be way more in tune to the data and the parts and understanding how far it was. But Keep in mind that I also, as part of the implementation, I turn the process, the operations process on its head. Yeah. So maybe I would, I don't know if I'd recommend that to somebody that made it a bigger challenge. Yeah. But um, we had like 900 operational steps. We're down to like 65. Wow. So that's totally, great. Right. So those kind of changes, I felt like there's no way I'm going to implement what we currently have. It's just, just not good manufacturing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's such an interesting position to be in because you didn't have any of that pre-work ready yeah. to go, uh, which a lot of times um, is, you know, one of our biggest recommendations just so that you're successful. But it sounds like you guys have done a great job in, you know, transitioning and evolving to meet those new needs of the system and yeah. the business. Yes, that's a great point. Don't put the guy, don't put guy like me in charge if I'm only two months into the company. Yeah, that two is. Months, a I didn't have an understanding. I have to learn all this stuff mm -hmm. and learn the system. And that was indeed a challenge. And I, that's what I mean by I would have learned a lot more had I been here for a few years and understood how the system here worked. So that six to nine months timeline, do you feel like if somebody else in your industry or your size as far as a company, is that a realistic timeline for implementation? Did I say six to nine? You made that up. You made that up to make it. <laughs> I appreciate that, Kyler. Um, let's see. If we, I think we when I I think we kind of started things in March. So if we started, uh, that gives us what? That's nine months, 10. It's more like 10 or 11 months at any um, I think it has to do with size of the company and then number of resources mm -hmm. that you can dedicate to the project. We dedicated nobody. Mm -hmm. We tapped people to do that in addition right. to their jobs. Uh, and that's that's a little rough in terms of initially, like that's what I mean by the early testing and stuff mm -hmm. like that. People are like, ah, you know, we'll get there, we'll get there. And so there's that kind of, if, they don't, if it's not their primary function, 
And it's not until, you know, you're a month out. And I think I then started doing the countdown for the team, right? I'm like, okay, we're 60 working days away. So we got to start getting more serious about it. Versus if you're nine months out, yeah, people are kind of futzing around and not really worrying about it. So that would be number one. To me, it's the size of the company. And what do I mean by that? Either number of people or number of parts. Okay. So if you're a, a large company who only has three different part numbers that you make, mm -hmm. it's much easier. Even if you have right. a thousand people, so now it's more about the culture. If you are a smaller company like us and you have 5,000 parts to manage, that's a lot, also a lot more work, I think. Um, so yeah, size of the company and number of SKUs, I think is a big factor. Number of customers also plays a pretty big role because even the data for our customers was all a mess. Yeah. A mess, right? And uh, one of the things about these tools like Epicor, um, you've got to have all the data in the right fields, not just have all the data, but you've got to have oh, yeah. it in the right fields, right? So things like we would have a phone number in the email line, or mm -hmm. we had free form and we're supposed to have it over here. And so that kind of data is just as difficult. So I would also say that not just large number of parts, but if you also have a large number of customers, mm -hmm. so you sell uh, something simple like a hula hoop, but you have, you know, whatever, 23, 2,600 customers, mm -hmm. you know what a hula hoop is, right? Of course I do. Okay. Yes. Well, I don't know. These days, I'm not sure in terms of, does anybody even have a hula hoop anymore? I don't know. We have a hula hoop. Yeah. At the house? The yeah, we yeah. have. a hula hoop? Are you teaching yeah. them how to hula hoop? Of course I am. They're American. Okay. They're, that's their job. <laughs> Learn how to hula hoop, kids. I don't know where you put that on your resume, but that's funny. Um, I could never do it. I, I could make a hula hoop for sure, but I could never actually do the hula hoop thing. Um, didn't have the rhythm. Uh, I think those would be kind of the key things in terms of right the the, um, the time frame. Yeah. I think the other piece in terms of implementation is um, you know Epicor recommends four days. Um, four days. We didn't need four. We did it in three. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I think that other piece people need to realize is one of those. The expectation is you're pretty much shut down on those mm -hmm. days. Because you don't want stuff moving, you don't want inventory, right? You want to kind of set your baseline and say, this is what we're moving forward with. And if everything's still moving around, it's a hard thing to do. So I guess my point is plan for the fact that you need to shut down the company. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that. And that's a really key, um, especially in manufacturing, right? Understanding that potential risk of disruption and the, um, the need to really shut down all operations during that oh, time. Absolutely. Especially if you're running like a six day three off three shift operation or a seven day three operation. I can't even imagine how you make that transition. That's a lot of lost hours and people are not comfortable with that. Okay, thanks Kyler and Jeff. That was a great conversation. There's a lot to unpack there. In fact, we'll do when we take a quick break or we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 74, and uh, we just had Kyler, your discussion with Jeff at Dexter Russell talking about his digital transformation. What were some of your takeaways now that you've had some time to let that settle in a bit since your conversation with him? Absolutely. Well, I would like to give Jeff and the whole Dexter Russell team a lot of credit for not only um, implementing successfully Epicor in their manufacturing environment, but also being so candid about, you know, the the missteps or mistakes that they would have done differently because hindsight is always 2020 when it comes to these types of projects. So him sharing that with our um, audience and community, I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for doing that. So first of all, um, that's such a great asset. And thank you, Jeff, for being on, on the show. Um, something I wanted to kind of dig into you, with you, um, Eric, from a process perspective is we went to De Dexter Russell. Jeff was actually new to the organization, taking over the entire digital transformation project, as he mentioned. They had already chosen Epicor before they engaged third stage. So we kind of came in with a new stakeholder with a system they had already chose. And that's something that happens to us a lot. So a lot of times we weren't totally involved in the software selection. And now we kind of... to teach the team how to implement um, a software that we didn't help them select um, from the get-go. So that seems to me like a kind of a challenging dynamic. Can you talk to that mm -hmm. a little bit more? Yeah, it's uh, funny you say that because I was thinking that too as we we're as listening to the conversation, but also as as we're um, just viewing our, our more recent clients and our, our client pursuits in, in recent months, we've seen a definite shift towards organizations that have already picked the technology they want and they they just need help implementing. And when I say they just need help, obviously that, that that's oversimplifying. <laughs> uh, and the, the reason they're asking for the help is because it's, it's more than just implementing. It's, it's pretty complex. But uh, one thing I'll say is that I actually like and prefer situations where the client has already done the legwork and due diligence and they've already picked the software. When I started my last company, I built the whole company on software selection. And it, in, in my opinion, there is value there. And we certainly do this. Don't get me wrong. We, we do help plenty of clients through their digital transformation selection processes, the digital strategy and roadmaps. That's a big part of what we do. But in my opinion, it's, it's actually more uh, interesting when they've already selected the software because now we can add the most value by making sure they implement it well. And most of the time they get it pretty close to right, or they might narrow it down to like two options, like, you know, in this case, Epicor. And I forgot, I think they were also looking at Infor and if I remember correctly, I can't remember the exact other vendors that they had considered. Um, but a lot of times we'll help to sort of validate the decision or um, help them understand if they have chosen a software, help them understand where the risks are and where the deficiencies are with that option. Because that to me is even more important than the selection itself is now that you've selected the software. And even if it is the best fit for you, 
It's never going to be a perfect fit. So now let's expose where those weaknesses are, not because we want to create uncertainty or doubt, but because we need to understand how we're going to mitigate those risks and how we're going to implement accordingly. Um, so I actually like that that approach. And I think, you know, part of why we put out so much content around different types of systems is partly because we're agnostic and we don't, you know, have a, a dog in the fight. It's, we're, we're happy with any sort of uh, technology that a, a system or that a client might implement as long as it's a good fit for their their needs. So um, I think it's a, a great move. I mean, one thing that um, I'll also say is that organizations sometimes get too caught up in analysis paralysis trying to decide which software to deploy. Right. And sometimes you've just got to make a decision and say, look, we're wasting time. We're burning resources. We're burning money on the decision. Let's reinvest that time and money in the implementation and make sure we get that right. And you also want to avoid that change fatigue thing that happens oftentimes too. If you if you drag on a, a decision on the software, people start to get tired of talking about it and they start to question whether or not it's really ever going to happen. So I guess what I'd say is there's a fine line between rushing into a decision and not knowing what you're doing and just picking a software out of the air versus um, you also on the other extreme don't want to take so long doing it that you waste time and money that you could be redeploying toward the implementation itself. So I don't know, does that answer your question or is that what you're- Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a, a great, um, and it goes along with what, what Jeff said. Um, and, you know, to build on that, is a lot of his feedback, though he internalized a lot of that responsibility as a new leader to the organization, is they chose a software and they didn't feel as though that vendor was transparent with them about what the internal IT needs are. And that's kind of what this our conversation and theme around this whole episode had been. And, you know, as Jeff said, if it weren't for Amanda Patton, who is an, an excellent project manager on our team, coming in and saying, you need X, Y, and Z, they wouldn't have known how to attach the system with their internal processes to meet their needs, not the vendor's needs. And I think that was the, the biggest gap there. So I wondered if you might kind of speak to how that manifests when you don't have that advocate in your corner, like third stage or a project manager that's been through an Epicor implementation as Amanda is, an, you know, obviously a seasoned veteran in that area. Um, so what, what do you need to do to look as an organization when you purchase a software, but you're not sure as far as not only the IT competencies you need in-house, but also just the, the processes you need to own as opposed to trying to match it to the software? Well, again, that, that gets back to that, what you had mentioned earlier in this episode about having that independent third-party advisor that can help you figure that out. Because, you know, if you ask a vendor, you know, either they're not going to know because they, that's just not what they do. You know, what you're talking about isn't really what they do. Their job is not to help you build internal IT competencies for the long term. Their job is to help you deploy software. Um, yes, they might have some high level opinions and things of that nature. I don't want to say they're just going to completely oh, you sure. know, wipe their hands clean of that, but they just don't know a lot of times. Um, in other uh, cases, they back to the point where we when we were talking about the system integrator dynamic, the unhealthy dynamic with system integrators, a lot of times when you're dealing with software vendors, implementation partners and system integrators, you, you just get this dynamic where they they don't want you to build those competencies and those internal IT support needs. They want you to be dependent on them. Um, so, you know, I think regardless of the cause of the root cause of the, the driver of that, I think it, it is up to you though, to define that and having that outside help that's objective, that isn't 
just trying to sell you more software or try you tech, trying to sell you technical services or support services, mm -hmm. um, just helping you chart the path that makes the most sense for you, I think is, is uh, an important role that we play and other, other third-party providers that are agnostic and technology agnostic can play as well. Yeah, and I, I think you can't speak to a project manager enough. Um, if you know Amanda Patton from a lot of the content that she's been on, she's she's not to be trifled with. She is a, a very um, organized and she a kind of get it done type of person. And and when you're kind of playing catch up as an organization because you weren't aware of what you were going to need, but you've already purchased the software, which is a very typical uh, position to be in. Uh, having that strong PM on that side is really going to be a game changer to make sure you're implementing on time and on budget. Um, the third piece I'll kind of just ask you about, and we can pull out some key findings from their experience at Dexter Russell. What Jeff had referenced is if he could do it again, right? He would make sure that he had all of the manufacturing processes laid out, complete visibility to the supply chain, complete visibility to the operation, and a better understanding of what that meant before a technology implementation. So can you tell us how important that is to really have all that pre-work done before going into any sort of digital transformation? Yeah, it's probably the best analogy I can think of was, was uh, related to a, a YouTube video I just released uh, not too long ago on my YouTube channel, where I talk about how digital transformations should be viewed less like a technology initiative and more like uh, building a house. And think of, you know, if, you, if you're building a building or a house or whatever it is, you think about all the things that you know you need to do intuitively. Even if you're not a, a home builder, you're not in the construction space like a lot of our clients are. Um, think about the things that you know you have to do. You have to, you have to have a blueprint. You have to have an architect who creates the blueprint for the overall um, design of the house. You need someone who's going to lay the foundation. You need the strong foundation. What you don't do is you don't just contact a plumber and say, hey, plumber, can you come in and be my general contractor and help me build a house? They're going to say, I can help you with the plumbing. Or they might say, sure, I'll help you build a house. I'm just going to focus on plumbing because that's what I know and that's what I'm good at. Um, but in, but if you think about it, that's what a lot of organizations do is they skip that step and they say, oh, I'm mm -hmm. just going to call the plumber and have the plumber come in and help build a house. And that's essentially what organizations are doing when they reach out to system integrators and have the technical people come in and start building that plumbing. Um, the house isn't ready. You, you haven't defined the blueprint and they have their own blueprint for how the plumbing is going to work. So when you use the word blueprint, oftentimes technical implementers will say, oh yeah, we got that. We're, we're going to have our own blueprint. Well, their blueprint is for the plumbing. You need a blueprint for the whole house. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's a big part of what, what you, the way you have to, to think about that. And I think that um, if you think of it in that perspective and, and really unpack and understand the different nuances of what a transformation really is and knowing that the technology piece it is not the same as re-engineering your entire manufacturing operations, which is what Jeff was talking about. Those are two different things. And if you want to re-engineer your business processes and you really want to rethink how you do things and how people's jobs are going to be organized, how you're going to be organized, how you're going to take advantage of common business processes, all that stuff, you need to do that up front so that you can be directing traffic as it comes when it comes to the subcontractors, if you will, back to the house analogy. So that when the plumber comes in, they know exactly where the walls are going to be and they know exactly how the plumbing specs need to work otherwise they're just going to come in and start laying plumbing or you know putting putting pipes in place that don't fit the vision that you're going to have for your house and um that's you know that's unfortunately too common of a dynamic in the space so i don't know if that answers your question or not but that to jeff's point i think that's highly uh 
it's it's uh, highly effective to do what he suggests that more organizations should do. And it's a good lesson to take away from something that he feels like they could have done more of. Well, as someone that literally just built a house with the project manager, my husband, um, I could completely understand that analogy and the fact that when we do the builder walkthrough, I just brought a lawn chair outside because he would be in there for at least three to four hours going through every little nook oh. and cranny. So you're going to have to know, film that. That'll be entertaining. Right? Maybe exactly. we'll use I it. Should do that. I should absolutely do that. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. Um, but in, in all seriousness, we really admire um, clients like Dexter Russell that can come in and they spend their time uh, doing these interviews with me so that other organizations can learn from their missteps or their successes. So I really want to thank Jeff and the Dexter Russell team. I will also say that Dexter Russell is a family-owned business. It's something we discussed on our multicultural and national panel today. Uh, I did put a link in our LinkedIn conversation for that live stream. But also, if you head over to our YouTube channel, we recently did a live stream for our digital stratosphere podcast with our SMB specialist, Christy Barber, that went through all of the dynamics of family-owned businesses. And if you like business psychology, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so absolutely a, a great follow-up for this. But thank you again to Jeff. And thank you, Eric, for helping us kind of unpack all of those um, those different idiosyncrasies and success factors for the blueprint of implementing Epicor in a manufacturing space. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for conducting that interview. And, and thank you to Jeff as well. I'll echo that same comment. It was great to have Jeff on. And it, it's a, it was a nice investment of his time. It's something he didn't have to do, but was willing to do mm -hmm. it. So we really appreciate it. Also appreciate the other guests we had on the show, uh, Clifford, Michelle, and Wayne. Uh, and of course, to you, Kyler, thanks for... Um, Thanks for co-hosting as always. And thank you to the audience more than anyone. Thanks to, to the audience for listening and being part of the show. Be sure to check us out every Wednesday. We'll have another episode next Wednesday. Uh, you can also go back and listen to all 73 episodes prior to this or any of the 73 episodes prior to this, if you'd like. We're, we're almost two years in now or at least a year and a half into uh, this weekly podcast. So there's a lot of good content out there. So be sure to check that out on the audio pad, podcast platforms or if you go to uh, my YouTube channel, I have a playlist called Transformation Ground Control Podcast, and it has all 74 plus episodes and counting uh, in that playlist if you'd like to go listen to any of the past episodes as well. So uh, thanks to everyone for joining here today. Hope you have a great rest of your week, and we look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care. Mm -hmm.